Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. This episode of Astonishing Legends is brought to you by Squarespace, The Great Courses Plus, and our contributors at Patreon.com. Welcome back to Arkapalooza, a show so big that it had to be broken into two parts. Tonight, our Astonishing Research Core panel returns, a team never before assembled on air in one podcast, together again for the first time in history, not including the week before last when it was previously assembled. From the depths of the rabbit hole to the heights of heaven's hutch, Dishing secrets the devil himself doesn't know. Stories too astonishing to be ignored, too outrageous to be believed, and too rambling and tangential to be followed clearly while doing a somewhat complicated task. So whatever you do, don't touch that dial. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. Yeah, I thought the 100th episode was just going to be one episode. Join us tonight for part two of our 100th episode, which might also be called episode 101, where senior members of the Astonishing Research Corps share and react to increasingly scarier stories from our inner circle. And we are back, all of us. That we are. We're going to pick up where we left off with Arkapalooza Part 1, which was only a little more than halfway through our ARC member stories. Yeah, well, tonight we've got four additional stories to share from ARC members, including one from Scott that is probably the only one he'd be able to tell in his long life, even though it only just happened a few weeks ago. Yeah, my own story did rattle me a bit, but it's nothing compared to ARC members Katie, Quaid, and Lauren's. Have we got something special lined up for you guys with them? So without further ado, let's jump back onto our Skype conference with Tess Feifel, Dr. Chris Cogswell, Rob Christofferson and Marie Mayhew. Hi. So welcome back, everybody. Just to make a brief explanation for our listeners who have been following Arkapalooza, we recorded the bulk of what is going to make up part one and part two actually a few weeks ago, but we didn't get finished because we had a couple of more stories we wanted to talk about, which is what we're going to do tonight. You may notice a slight change in audio quality because we did improve some of our recording situations. So if there's a difference there in the course of part two, that's because part two is made up from two different sessions, recording sessions, just Mm. so everybody knows. Does anyone care. I don't think they do, but I said it anyway. (laughs) And then the next thing that we're going to do is we had a lot of questions come in for the actual ARC members. That'll be a fun segment because you'll get your questions in for them as well. Because we did, as you know, if you even bothered to download and click on it, (laughs) the bonus... (laughs) Last week's bonus (laughs) episode was just the ones that came in specifically for Forrest and I, and we answered those. I mean, they were narrowed down a little bit. Thank you for doing that, Tess. And now we're going to take on some of these other questions. So, Tess, why don't we take a look at a couple of those questions from our listeners for the ARC panel? Megan Joyce asks, for any ARC member, what's your dream topic for the show? No, no one has an answer. I can go first. 
Go ahead, Tess. You go first. Okay, so it's witches because I'm literally wearing a shirt right now that says with my witches. (laughs) Um, They are my gateway drug, so to speak, to the paranormal. Um, So I'd really like to look into the malus malficarum. Oh, very cool. Well, we broached that with uh, the Bell Witch, but that whole story is kind of a different thing. It's, you know, somewhat mistitled. Bell witch was considered witch back then, as we explained on the show. Like any spirit mm-hmm. was considered probably a witch yeah. or yes. could be applied to a witch. But no, we didn't get into the Salem witch trials or any of the stuff that really gets uh, Tess going, but you <laughs> might one day. You know. Yes. I would love to do that. Anybody else have any dream topics they're waiting on? One that I think that you guys could really do really well is um, Edgar Casey, just because his journey from this staunch he was really wrapped up in his beliefs to, hey, this is a guy that is this medium channeler who talks about people's previous lives and that the next stage in evolution is this supposed alien species. It's a really cool story, and I think you guys could do it well. Oh, yeah. That's been on our list for a very long time, ever probably since yeah. before we started the podcast. I think I've been put off by the fact that there's like a whole school, like his body of work is so great. It scares me more than Giants did. Oh, you mean just in the volume of it? Yeah. Yeah, well, there's, there's yeah, the, narrowing it down. The ARE. There's, yeah. uh, you have to look at it, though. And what they've yeah. done, though, is um, he would give these readings about people's health, really. And uh, they would come up with an ailment, and he would have a homeopathic cure, which was interesting in and of itself at the time, because we're talking about the 30s. And you read the stuff now, it's like, you know, that sounds like a, a natural cure. It's like, well, that's back when... People weren't doing that really, other than for folk medicine. So what's interesting is that he would come up and say, like, while this may help with your rheumatism or your congestion, you were also uh, this Egyptian scribe that worked in the temple. So it was blowing people away. And he gave thousands of readings over the course of his life, but nothing was ever contradicted in the entire timeline that he did. It's overwhelming, but you have to look at it in different aspects. There's the story of his life, and there's a book called uh, There is a River. I think early on, Rob and I were talking Mm -hmm. about that book. Basically, that's kind of a biography of his life, which is pretty amazing. And then there are other subjects that he did. There's uh, the one on Atlantis, because that is mind-blowing. Yeah. Really Mm -hmm. mind-blowing. I mean, like, that's the biggest science fiction we've never made. That's what I'm saying. I think we'd we'd have to pick a direction. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, he'd come at it, you know— once yeah. a year for a couple of years. <laughs> well, I can see it in two parts. There's the story of him and his life because it was pretty interesting in just what he did personally because he never believed any of the stuff that he was saying. Yeah. He was yeah. raised Baptist, I believe, and that was blowing his mind, reincarnation and all that. Yeah. Uh, and then my second vote would be to cover Atlantis. Oh, uh, there you go. Uh, there you go. Okay. I would say probably my, that I really want to see get done would be Famous hoaxes, actually. Oh, yeah. Or a famous hoaxer. I would love to see a series on P.T. Barnum. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. And probably one of the coolest gifts I've ever got was Katie's mom and dad bought me a biography of P.T. Barnum, like a first edition one. Wow. Um, it's really cool. And kind of going into like the Long Island Mermaid and the uh, freak show circuit and all the different ways to kind of hoax the public. And then also just sort of the idea of a snake oil salesman or a traveling showman in the American consciousness. I think it's much more ingrained in the study of the paranormal and American belief generally than maybe we like to give credit to because we think, you know, we, we don't want to think when we're going out there and doing ghost hunts or Bigfoot sightings or whatever, these local towns, we don't want to think that there's this like pedigree back from when people were selling sugar water as a way to cure baldness or something, right? Yeah. But really, the fact that the paranormal or the mystical or the non-traditional sciences are so ingrained in American life, I think stems from this 
overarching theme of people would go from town to town and sell these amazing cures and these different things. Really, it actually digs into Edgar Casey as well, right? It all gets into it because really that was sort of his shtick for a while. It's such a huge part of the paranormal phenomena that we just don't, we don't really talk about that much. I think it's cool. This is an easy one. Mike wants to know, what kind of beer do you guys drink? I can answer that pretty easily because I don't drink beer. I only like to drink gin and white wine. So none. So there you go. I would go for the opposite end of the spectrum and say, I'll drink any beer. <laughs> I'm kind so of there a, you are. Yeah, I'm with Marie on that one. Whatever's around, although I have my preferences. Rob, you a beer drinker? I don't drink anymore. I actually quit last year. Oh, so. yeah. Well, good for you. Yeah. That's awesome. Wow. Yeah, man. That's amazing. I drink a lot of Sam Adams. That's like my go-to beer. Uh, and I would say too, like as much as it pains TJ at Pints and Puzzles, <laughs> it is Sam Adams for Chris. And then I would also say uh, Magic Hat is amazing. Magic Hat's Oh yeah, I've had Magic good. Hat. Yeah. David Hudson wants to know, on a sillier note, which two cryptids would you breed together to form a hybrid? <sighs> <laughs> I would do Bigfoot and Nessie because I think Big Nessie would be a hilarious creature <laughs> that was land and sea accessible. So it really bridges that gap. That's pretty good. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, there is that missing sort of market share for something that is both land and sea. Right. <laughs> An amphibious cryptid. Yeah. 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 So I really like Mothman, particularly for Mothman. I like Indrid Cold. And mm. I'm going to count Indrid Cold as a cryptid because I think I like to believe that Indrid Cold and Mothman were one thing. That's just my own like head cannon. Like it's not true. <laughs> Probably, I mean, who knows if any of it is true, but like, yeah. you know. If you believe any of this to begin with. Right. I think it'd be pretty awesome, though, for Indrid Cold slash Mothman to be mixed together with a giant squid, actually. As opposed to it being Mothman having this, like, flying tentacled monster. That's so much scarier. Oh, yeah. Damn, is that cool. Yeah. Get at me, sci-fi channel. <laughs> Billy wants to know, have you ever researched a topic, and when the episode is over, you continue to research the same topic, digging deeper and deeper for your own accord, and not anything to do with future shows? Mm. Go ahead, So Cox. we actually have been talking to a sound engineer, an acoustics engineer about Dyatlov Pass in our free time, me and Marie. <laughs> we, yeah. Love Pass is like the one that I think would be really cool to do fluid flow modeling through the pass itself and see how yeah. much vibration or how much pressure drop you can really get across that channel. So that's definitely one for me at least. And then the other one I would say would be, I mean, UFOs every single day. That's like, that's a big part of my day. <laughs> big part of Rob's day too. Now big part of Marie's mm -hmm. day. Like, that's what we do. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I will say Dyatlov Pass because I do think it should be in the realm of, I don't want to say solvable, but I think you could still apply certain scientific principles to it to start to eliminate or leave in. And that's just one of the things that, you know, you just start running through your head again because it is such a weird anomaly. I'm Dyatlov too. That was my mm -hmm. first show and it's my favorite mystery. But besides that, I think it's Bell Witch because... The more shows we do, and because we have so many different topics at once going, I'm finding a lot of weird linkages between descriptions of entities and spirits and tulpas and all that, that are seemingly all lead back to bell witch description. So I'm finding that really interesting. Oh, yeah. Tulpa! <laughs> Patreon member Amanda asks, I'm just curious, what is everyone reading in their free time to relax? So I guess what's one book you're currently reading? To be honest, with all the work that I put in right now on my show, 
it's really UFOs all the time. I literally can't stop myself. I have so many books that I could just read for recreation and I will always go for the UFO book. And right now I'm reading like four of them. So there's no stopping this train. It's just going to keep rolling. (laughs) Remind our listeners the name of your show, Rob. Uh, It's called the Our Strange Skies podcast. And if you like UFOs, it's UFOs nonstop. (laughs) All UFOs all the time? All the time. All the time. (laughs) What does that word relax mean? Yeah. Is that like a <laughs> is that like a type of sandwich? Like so to relax, I play video games till my mind rots. But <laughs> I've actually been pretty much making my way through like Lord of the Rings again. Like I read it all the time, and then I think the next one I'm probably gonna read all the way through again is Harry Potter. Cause like those books, I've read Harry Potter like once a year since they came out. Every year I read it. So I'm probably gonna start again. I'm currently reading, I always read one nonfiction book and one fiction book at the same time. So I'm currently reading An Uneasy Peace, The Great Crime Decline and the Renewal of City Life and the Next War on Violence. It's really interesting. And there's a big part about DC, whereas I live on it. So it's really interesting to kind of think about violence and violent reporting and crime stats in a new way. And to the chagrin of my boyfriend, I am reading Game of Thrones Finally, uh, I am a Lord of the Rings girl through and through. So he had to beat me down a little bit to read the comma splice filled George R. R. Martin. But I am on book two currently. All right. Oh. And enjoying it, actually. How about you, nice. Marie? You got any recreational reading going on there? I just picked up Born by Jeff Vandermeer, who wrote Annihilation, Authority and Acceptance. So that was just made into the, the movie. So it's like, yeah, I'm a big fan of sort of the um, speculative fiction, which he does yeah. really, really well. And he writes beautifully. And it's I'm excited to start start in on it. I haven't read a book recreationally in quite a while, just because of the show, kind of like Rob was saying, and we're always buried mm-hmm. in like I'm behind five books right now. But I think the last <laughs> one I read recreationally was Dust by Hugh Howie, which is a cool so science fiction good. book. Yeah. And mm-hmm. then I read a couple of his other books, which I also enjoyed. And that's been optioned into a movie too. I don't know what status it's at, but it's a post-apocalyptic thing. Brandy wants to know, is there any topic that after you researched it, you changed your mind about? <laughs> Mine was Henry Plummer, no doubt, because, sorry, Scott and Forrest, I was like, oh God, <laughs> it's the Old West. It's going to be boring. Where's the story? <laughs> How told are we going to get there? I oh. know. I'm a turncoat. I'm a turncoat. And the more I read, the more I was immersed in the culture and what it meant in American history and the importance of the West. And, you know, it's not just about spaghetti Westerns and it's not just another throwaway story. So I was really surprised to be as interested in it as I was. Well, there you go, Scott. It wasn't totally worth it. <laughs> yeah. Don't, yeah. Well, actually, Apologize to me, Chess, not well, for us, because he's go. thrilled Sorry. to hear that. <laughs> yeah. So actually, this isn't one that I researched, but the series that I listened to that really got me hooked on you guys, too, was one that did change my mind, which was the KGC. Oh, yeah. Uh, gold yeah. episode. That's Knights of the Golden like, Circle. Uh-huh. Love Oh, my that goodness. Because it sounds like a half-baked conspiracy theory when you first yeah, look at it. It sounds yes. ridiculous. Yeah. Right? It sounds completely ridiculous. And then I heard the episode, and I'm like, i got to search for gold. There's gold <laughs> in the hills. Like, I legitimately, like, went from thinking it was so silly, and I was like, oh, whatever. This is going to be ridiculous to like reading about the signs that people would leave for each other. And even like hobo marks, that kind of stuff is fascinating now to me. It's seriously like it opened up a whole new world of annoying things for me to talk to Katie about. (laughs) Many people believe it still exists today in some form as a legacy that people are still watching these caches. So be careful out there, Chris. 
it's still something that sticks with me. Just the part with Jesse James in that I think is so fascinating. Yeah. But there wasn't one Jesse James. It was a moniker for a group of people. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. Cool. And that, you know, you can go back and look at images and daguerreotypes and things like that. And he looks different. Yeah, I think it's pretty fascinating. And I guess I have that book. Jesse James is one of his names. It's like a right, $500 man. book yeah, yeah. because all the treasure hunters want it. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. My biggest turnaround is a very brief answer to this is probably Skinwalker. When I <laughs> when I read it, I thought yeah. kind of like Cogs. I was like, well, this is going to be a bunch of hooey. When I finished it, I was like scared to go outside without a flashlight. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very excited to answer this question because I have a very nerdy answer. Sean wants to know, what was it that pulled you into the weird and wonderful world of the paranormal and supernatural? I think I told Scott and Forrest this when I first started working for them, but my mom had her dollhouse from the 60s in our house, and we really didn't want to play with it because it was ugly and had no furniture. But she said, you know, fairies live there, so you have to leave milk Mm -hmm. out for them. We would leave milk for them. And every night for probably six months, my mom would have two little fairies called Riddle and Yum Yum write us notes in this like calligraphy script. She'd have little powdered sugar feet. The dolls was in our playroom. So maybe, you know, Riddle and Yum Yum would mess up the bed or, you know, there'd just be little notes of make sure to be nice to Grace. That's my little sister. So I just wanted to say thanks, Mom. Um, She's listening right now. (laughs) That's awesome. When I was a kid growing up, I was born, I think, a year before Ghostbusters came out. Through the years, they had the uh, real Ghostbusters cartoon series, which I have like a few seasons of here. But like. One of the coolest things that I ever got for Christmas was that plastic proton pack. And I wore that thing for like a year straight. <laughs> I would not take oh. that off. I was busting ghosts nonstop. Yes. <laughs> you had like bed sores from wearing it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> the only thing I didn't have was the jumpsuit, but that didn't matter because you know what? I threw out that trap and I pumped up the air to make those doors open. And dang it, ghosts went in that damn thing. <laughs> Hell yeah. So the last question I think is very um, apropos. So Lawrence wants to know, in case of an alien attack, will Astonishing Legends, The Mad Scientist, and Our Strange Skies be available on shortwave radio? And where should we gather for the last stand? Hmm. DIA. Um, Well, first of all, we're not allowed to discuss that protocol on the air. (laughs) Well, Scott has his own, and unfortunately does include the rest of us. I do have a rendezvous point that I can go to. It's a dumpster. Uh, somewhere there's there, a dumpster, there's a dumpster <laughs> in the involved. same place is it by the same dumpsters in florida where they see the skunk uh, no this one is uh <laughs> in the remote southwest yeah. desert well you're yeah. giving away too much now uh, people you will be you looking for it, it. Yeah. yeah you can look forever you'll never find it well uh everyone uh what's your answer on that so i always joke that if there's ever like a thing like that happening or whatever me and katie are gonna go up to her grandma's cabin in new hampshire good land you can farm there plenty of firewood, flowing river. Like, we're good. We'd be set, right? Yeah. The problem, though, is that we are right next to the Walmart. So, like, the (laughs) land that she owns, if you go, like, a couple miles down, you get to where the Walmart parking lot is because they bought some of that land from her. That Walmart, though, I guarantee is going to just be ransacked. And so it's kind of like, it'd be good for us to stay there, but we would definitely get hit with some Walmart folks with guns and stuff yeah <laughs> like, it's not not the best position although it might be good for our for our uh, our lives if aliens come down i'm going with them you know what i mean voluntarily like, I always, like, yeah when i was a kid i used to be really afraid of like getting abducted by aliens and so at first my mom would tell me like okay well 
They're not real. Don't worry about it. And then finally my mom was like, well, that's not going to work. And so she was like, well, it won't happen. Like, don't worry. And then she was like, and if it does happen, that's how superheroes get their power sometimes. Mm, right? Yeah. Good parenting. So when I was a kid, I think that was my mom. I'm not certain that that was. She's definitely going to call me when this airs and be like, that wasn't me. You're lying. <laughs> but yeah. so like now, whenever I'm like, oh, that'd be scary to get abducted by aliens. I'm like, but I'd ask them for superpowers. Just real quick before you drop me back off. Can I fly? It doesn't like have to fly. be a good power. You can give me, I don't care, super jumping. Yes. <laughs> Spring Hill Jack. <laughs> give me something. <laughs> and Rob, could he's reading a, a book on abduction right now. Rob, who who's the author on that? John Mack. Right. He, uh documented the psychological profile of abductees. Right, oh, right. wait, which, which one is that? I think I might be reading that one right now, too. Is that? It's this one. This one right here. You got to say yeah, it because nobody can see what right you're now. holding. Rob! Yeah, that book is buck wild, man. Honestly, <laughs> Marie really would good. probably make the aliens kneel to her. <laughs> probably. <Yeah. laughs> so I don't yeah. think she has to have a plan, and I think that's why she's been saying she's plan. sitting on that's that info. Well, I'm just sort of thinking about it, and it's like, man, I don't know. I think I've read so much dystopian fiction that you just don't want to be around for that stuff, right? You read, like, The Road. Oh, I can't God. remember the guy's like, name. Mm. And it's like, oh, God. Cormac McCarthy. Yeah, it's yeah. like, man, I don't know about that. I don't know. If, if it's purely speculative, I would say DIA. <laughs> Get to Denver <laughs> International <laughs> Airport as quick as you possibly uh, get can. Get underground. Yeah, because they're they are the ones that are going to be have the best supplies, the best contingency plans, you know, everything planned out. If they didn't, you know, prompt this I was going to say, Marie, we talk a lot of smack about the reptiles on our show. They're not going to let us in there. <laughs> yeah, the reptilians? Oh, not, you the are reptilians done, are not going to help us. I don't know, but you know, the, you're, you're taking into consideration that they, you know, I look at things the same way we do. They may just be amused at our little ramblings and how, how cute. Oh, how adorable. Look at them. Ha, ha, ha. Yeah. They might have pity. Yeah. yeah. And then you guys can do the show from a little desk in a big glass room. And yeah. they come in with bright lights. <laughs> like and they come in and look at you and eat popcorn. Yeah. Oh, that's well, you know what I think is going to Say a joke. <laughs> you know what I think is going to happen, though? Marie's going to go into a coffee shop and the aliens are going to recognize yeah, her. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's already, hey, it's already happened. You never know. Aliens are pretty smart. I've read so much Kurt Vonnegut that I think it's just going to be boring. Not yeah. that Kurt Vonnegut is boring, but <laughs> yeah. that like aliens are always... Oh, so we're going to go into zoos? Yeah, aliens are always secondary. It's always the people that are still, you know, causing all the trouble. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's like a Stephen King premise we said. It's a lot mm-hmm. of times the the horror comes from ourselves interacting with each other. But he can't write aliens well. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. The Tommy yeah. knockers. It's terrible. I hate <laughs> oh, them. Ah. Rob, this isn't our shows, Rob. We can't talk smack about celebrities. They might be listening. <laughs> uh, the king is going to send you king. like okay. a, I don't know, a clown pom-pom in the mail. I know. <laughs> Chris, Chris, he might agree with me about the Tommy knockers. <laughs> I don't know. No, I would make the argument that anything that we've researched and a lot of the fiction out there the human element to me, at least, is the most interesting thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, sure, the aliens are interesting. Situationally, they're interesting. But it's when humans come in contact with, mm. you know, and that was the thing to me that was the most interesting about Diatlov. It's the thing that really, to me, was the most engaging and the most interesting about Skinwalker. And that mm-hmm. actually I believe the most about Skinwalker was that somewhere people are having this reaction and are seeing things and how they're reacting is what makes it so interesting to others, even though it might be the guise of a reptilian or 
whatever, or, you know, a giant wolf that is resistant to gunshots, <laughs> what's really the tie is, is how people react. Yeah. Mm. And that's the most interesting thing to research, I think, too. All the rest of it is abstract, you know. Yeah. One thing that you always read over and over again with people that have interactions with extraterrestrials, okay, is the one thing that they don't understand emotions. You could be furiously angry at them and they don't understand and I've read this so many times over and over again. So like, what is it about that human element that they come to us for? So I, I tend to agree with you. Or Dyatlov. What was interesting about that was, especially when I heard Scott and Forrest talking about, was the passion behind these students as people, mm. right? That these are people that actually live, that had this event, this terrifying thing happen. Or even in um, Skinwalker, you know, you've got these ranchers that are just literally trying to make a living and protect their livestock and are just bombarded with weird, weird stuff. And then on the end of that, you have this, this man come in who acquires the ranch, acquires knowledge. You don't understand exactly for why, but it's still very, all this sort of human motivation. And I think, you know, that again, like to me, that's the key in the research. And that's actually something that we touch on on our show a lot is the idea that if these stories are, are not true, if all of them are made up, that's almost scarier. That there is a group of people who have all decided to buy into this lie and are propagating it. If there are no UFOs, if there are no aliens, that means that there are thousands of people out there who all decided to jump on this bandwagon and lie. That's mm. tremendously scary. Well, maybe me. not so much lie as want to believe. No, right, but that's, but that's what, what I'm saying is if we assume that it's all false, then everyone that's ever come out with a UFO report, most of them maybe are misidentified or something. But the ones that are claiming I was abducted, right? If there are no abductions, if there are no aliens out there, then there are by definition no abductions from aliens. That means that all those abduction cases are false and all this mythos has just been built up around nothing. That's mm. tremendously scary. What else can we do? Like that. Right, Chris, because I see it as, as two ways. If none of that is true, then either, you know, you could have a uh, some agency, a governmental entity fueling people's psychosis. And then the abduction phenomenon is a pathology. Yeah. It's, it's something within humans' brains. That's a big argument um, that there is something within us that's had this form since before UFOs became a big thing to talk about, before it became uh, part of the zeitgeist is that there is something within us that, uh, I had to work it in, I'm sorry, uh, yeah. that there's some, some aspect of that that allows us and uh, makes us vulnerable to this kind of idea of this otherworldly, the other coming in and uh, taking us over, whether it's spirits or it's aliens or whatever it is. And so, yeah, I think I see your fear in that. It's like, wow, we're prone to that. Yeah. And it happens to a good part of the population. And that's why I keep saying to people, even if you are an academic who thinks that UFOs aren't real, you can still study the UFO fields and find interesting things. There are interesting answers there. So sure. my two spooky sense. <laughs> Speaking of spooky, are you ready to talk about yeah. the stories? All right. So this story is from ARC member Katie Cohen, who's actually one of our newer members. She's had some expertise in anthropology and joined us for the Giants series. Actually gave us a lot of great information. Let's go to her story. Hi, everyone. I have been fascinated by the mysterious aspects of our world ever since I was young, although I didn't have any strange personal experiences until I was a teenager. 
Even then, I never witnessed anything that I would consider definitive until just a few years ago. I was in my late 20s at the time, and I had moved into a little rental house with my husband in New York State. The house itself was nestled in the woods on a quiet road. It appeared welcoming at first, small but colorful with calming natural light. However, as time went by, it became clear that other things were going on. By the end of our stay there, my husband and I had a long list of paranormal incidents that we observed in that house. Some were inexplicable manifestations during the night, such as both of us smelling smoke when there was none, or both of us witnessing water materializing and pooling in places it couldn't have naturally appeared. No matter how hard we tried to look for rational causes for these types of occurrences, they could not be reasonably explained. Along with this, despite typically being really good sleepers, we just could not sleep soundly there. Every single night, I would see tiny lights darting back and forth around the bedroom before I fell asleep. My husband, who is a very rational person, had frequent horrifying nightmares there, which is unlike him. Even my dog would pace around all night long, which, you guessed it, is unlike him. As you can see, my husband and I had many shared experiences in that house. Now, I'd like to tell you about the scariest night I personally had there. Late one night, I woke up to the feeling of a terribly negative presence to my back. I somehow got up the courage to turn around and look to see what was there, but I didn't see anything or anyone. Still, I felt so petrified that I had no idea what to do. For some reason, I couldn't act logically. I felt too afraid to wake my husband up for help at the time. The dark presence would just not lift. It felt like something awful was staring right at me. I pulled the covers over my head and stayed awake for hours until I was so exhausted that I fell back asleep. Whatever it was was gone when I woke up. Afterwards, I tried to explain this event away too, but I was never able to. I could physically move and felt awake at the time, so I really don't think it was an episode of sleep paralysis. The dark presence luckily never returned, but as I mentioned earlier, many other unsettling things occurred until we moved out. I know some of what I describe here could be attributed to a hypnagogic state or something similar. However, I can say that I have never experienced anything quite like this before or since. And the overwhelming number of things that both my husband and I experienced in that house was very convincing. While there are many more details to this story, I thought it would be interesting to share these parts of my experience. Since my time spent living in that little house in the woods, and that one terrifying night in particular, changed my perception of the paranormal forever. I feel like I truly see the world differently after living in that house. It made me much more cautious and quite a bit more frightened by the unknown. But I also became even more fascinated by the unexplained. Unsurprisingly, this is a part of what drew me to the arc and astonishing legends in the first place. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. 
Get in, loser. Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. I'm Kelsey from St. Joseph Moe, and when I'm not at Club Geek, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. Okay, first of all, Cabin in the Woods, inherently creepy. Very. (laughs) (laughs) More of a house, I think. Yeah, a house, that's true. The thing that freaks me out about that story the most, I mean, there's the scary part at the end of it, but what I always take interest in, and this reminds me of when we had my friend Mark Brignoni on, who told the Laughing Indian story, Mm -hmm. as well as the Flirting Ghosts of Norway when he was in the hotel in Norway that he would smell the perfume and like smells when they, and they Mm -hmm. said they would both smell like the fire. That's when you're just like, what is that? Well, yeah, that's a common, interesting aspect, especially smoke. I've heard a few stories where people will smell smoke, especially if, you know, there's an entity there who uh, supposedly smoked a cigar or or cigarettes all the time. I've heard that from uh, people talking about their family members them sensing a, uh, you know, it's like, oh, Aunt Dottie, yeah, she she was a chain smoker. Yeah. And mm-hmm. they'll think of her or, or something, and then they smell the smoke. But, of course, there's no wisps of smoke anywhere. It's kind of all in your head in a strange way. So, right. yeah, smoke's a common theme. Yeah, and that's interesting. But then also these feelings that they're getting, and then her husband having all these nightmares there. I mean, I guess you could have sometimes... Maybe you have strange dreams, like what I was saying about sleeping at the Monte Vista in Flagstaff. It was an unusual place to be, and I was predisposed to thinking something weird was going to happen. So then I had that not only exploding head syndrome, but a crazy dream about a train. (laughs) But (laughs) I'm I'm glad that was the only thing that was exploding. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, what is that? I don't even know what that is. Uh, If you if you stayed with Scott, you know what I meant. So, (laughs) Uh, but in any case, I see what you mean. It's well, that's called the Tetris effect. When I was looking up hip and hypnopompic experiences. You know what that is, right? The Tetris effect? Yeah, sort of. If you do a repetitive thing or something, you know, throughout the day, you're more likely to dream about it. And what they noticed with, I think, these college test subjects that were doing something else with Tetris, or Tetris was being used for some other part of of an experiment— they would often dream of Tetris mm. for some reason. So you said, you got to like, play know. a lot. I got to tell you, you got to play a lot of video game. I don't Be- before think... Before you go back to Tetris? Well, no, <laughs> I just, I've never dreamed. Yeah. I've played a lot of video games when I was younger. I don't play as much now because I don't have time because of our sure, show. Sure. But I was obsessed with Halo, like one through three. I yeah. played with friends all the time. And I do remember having dreams. It was like I was injured and I was looking for one of those first aid things on the wall. Oh, that... <laughs> <laughs> in your dream. Yeah, oh, that brings wow. you oh, back funny. to full health. I sure. definitely had dreams about that. Yeah. Well, those are very <laughs> realistic. Uh, but I, I think the idea with Tetris is that there's something very rudimentary about it. Yeah. yeah. Just the patterns and the moving shapes and the blocks. And it just somehow, it's a dream worm. Yeah. It comes out again and you're going to dream about it. Getting back to the cottage, I, you know, always wanted to know what's the history. Like, is it ancient burial grounds there? 
who lived in it before, what went on there? Because I think sometimes yeah. it can. And this is another story coming up where this building, where this really spooky event happens, we're going to hear about later. You, you know, know, I read this some time ago, Forrest. I read that disturbances like that are associated with the ground they stand on and not the structure. Yeah, mm. right. It's, it's and I mean, yeah. I don't know. Well, don't that's, know that's and again, that's we talked about this before, the stone tape theory, uh, yeah. where something is uh, some kind of human emotion is imparted into the earth itself, or it could be the building. A lot of times, you know, old theaters, hospitals, churches, any structure that's seen a lot of human emotion seem to have more activity than others. So, yeah. Rob, did you have a, you wanted to kick in on this? Just in uh, other people's research that I've seen, when you talk about elemental things like smoke and you talk about water, these are generally associated in many poltergeist cases. There are yeah. elements of water, there are elements of fire, there are these weird elemental things that end up showing up. And it generally is an indication of something really powerful. But at the same time, it's like uh, when you grow up watching Unsolved Mysteries and you're familiar with the name Dr. William Roll, mm. there's a guy that uh, tried to connect certain types of phenomena with what's under the ground. Absolutely. So you got to wonder what's it sitting on. It definitely seems to be something powerful there and it's being experienced by everybody including the dog and the most frightening aspect is it's in my state and i don't know where this is and i'm kind of freaked out about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's in your house no! yeah. one thing that is really of note to me after hearing and listening to everyone's stories and, and our discussions about it is this is really one of the only cases that we've looked at that is sustained activity most paranormal activity that people talk about or even that our own stories are about could be fleeting. Sometimes it could last an hour, sometimes five minutes, sometimes five seconds. So the fact that this was sustained over a period of months with consistency and changes in MO, like, you know, sometimes it was smoke, sometimes it was feeling something, sometimes it was seeing something. That to me yeah. really struck terror. Yeah, that's a really valid point. In fact, my own story that's coming up next in the show is just a matter of seconds, hmm. the activity. It's crazy. You've got a sludge entity type thing going on where it's a resident. Yeah. Like, I've been here forever. Exactly. And uh, you will now leave as best I can get you to go. So It makes me wonder if the activity has continued right since they moved. I mean, it may not show up again for years. You know, that's kind of a question that I always wonder is, is it actually the place? Is it the person? Is it a mix of the two things? Like, I've talked about physiological ideas about what I think it could be and even like psychological things like proneness to anxiety or something. But mm -hmm. so it makes me wonder if no one would ever want to be the guinea pig for this experiment, but it would be fascinating to think, well, you had experience in this home, you leave it and things go back to normal. What if we put you back in the home, mm. right? You know, I mean, what if the, the next homeowner, the next person who's renting this place out have they experienced anything? That's, to me, the most interesting thing. And then like what Tess was saying, with the continuity of the story, with these places that are considered to be haunted, I think it's really interesting that it can be relatively predictive almost. You expect mm -hmm. you will have a haunting experience or a scary experience in this place, in this specific room, and then a good portion of people have that experience. That's interesting data. I also wonder, though, too, I was actually thinking about this when... Marie and I were doing a thing on hauntings 
I feel like there are a lot less haunting stories that have specific, like, a woman in a wedding dress who lost her husband always roams the same hallway, right? Like, I expected, like, a physical-looking ghost who had a background in a story. Not some guy gets a scratch mark on his back or you get a weird feeling in a dark room. Yeah. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah. I always find that interesting anyways. I don't know. I just think that's so weird that, like, no one has that kind of clear experience, really. (laughs) Yeah, well, I That's think a, a lot point. of that has to do with how it was perpetuated in things like fiction growing up well, as totally. it came along, you know, like telling these ghost stories by gaslight. Like, of course, there's full entities there, but the narrative has changed because if you look at ghost hunting shows, it's not like they show you a, a full bodied apparition every single episode. They can't do that because it's not the way that it manifests. It makes me think that maybe we are thinking about this thing the wrong way, right? I mean, you get to the whole grand unified paranormal theory. There are no beings. It is no ghostly veil or something, right? A, a, mm. uh, whatever, a being. It is a feeling. It is feelings and forces and water and, right, like just weird sensory tricks being played on us. Right. One thing to keep in mind, even um, with fiction, is that the idea of a humanoid or being-type ghost really didn't come into fashion until the 1800s. And even then, spiritualism really kicked it off. Before then, a lot of the stories you read prior to that are wispy, or it'll be smoke, or it'll be like Hmm. some kind of thing you see, like a cloud of smoke or a puddle or something, but not a human. Um, And actually, the humanoid ghost really, really took off when you meld space and time through transportation, so trains and steamboats, letter writing, all that, and they take on a more human form, and that's why you see the hitchhiker ghost come up. Mm. Ooh, that's fascinating. Mm -hmm. There's another interesting point on the spiritualism aspect. When I talked to John Tenney last week, he made an interesting note that the first mediums, they weren't channeling spirits. They were channeling people from Mars. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So, like, yeah, it's it's definitely uh, interesting to see how things have progressed through the years. <laughs> there isn't anything yeah. up here. It's so boring and cold. <laughs> right? yeah. Well, it's another plane of existence that's so far away, it's kind of unimaginable. So it might as well be... An underworld, a Hades of sorts. There was this um, interesting case that we did once where we were out in the middle of nowhere in this cemetery. It wasn't an old cemetery. It maybe was like 20 years old at the time. We immediately got out. We got our meters on and uh, we started getting stuff immediately. And like idiots, we just went off into the cemetery. We didn't even pay attention to it. And we because it was around the car. We kept going back to the car and we kept getting stuff and we still kept walking away until finally myself and another investigator went went back and we could follow this thing around the car. What would happen is you'd get a meter hit, it would go away after a certain you know minute or two, you'd move forward and there it was again and it just kept going around the car, just kept walking around the car. So the ghost box is a questionable tool, at least for me, but... This night that we used it, we got interesting results because we kept asking what the spirit's name was, and it kept saying the same thing. It said its name was Jeff three times. And we just kept walking around, walking around, and we followed him till we just packed up and left. He didn't stop walking around the car for whatever reason. About two months later, we're doing this. It's kind of like a fall festival kind of thing. We're trying to drum up investigations and stuff like that. 
And uh, the team leader pulls me aside and he's like, hey, you remember that spirit Jeff in that one cemetery? He's like, yeah. It's like, well, we know who Jeff is. He's like, what do you mean? He's like, we were asking around and um, we found out that there was a guy named Jeff that committed suicide at the end of the road where that cemetery was. And the kicker was is that we didn't know why it kept going around the car. We rode in a red Pontiac Sunfire and they asked, like, why would he be interested in the car? And it turns out his daughter had one just like it. Oh, wow. There you go. That's a button on that story. Right. Yeah. Good night, everyone. <laughs> those, it. Those, We're done. Those tools are subjective. And, like, when you ask certain people, like, listening to an interview with somebody else who went out and did EVPs the old-fashioned way and been doing it for, like, 30 years, he only got 50 over the course of 30 years that he actually trusted. Hmm. I have folders and folders and folders on my computer of synthesis runs that I did for these materials mm. over the entirety of my PhD. I probably ran 800 syntheses, maybe even more. If you count times that I did synthesis, not number of tests, like number of vials and stuff that we made. If you count all of that, I think probably it was successful maybe 50 times. <laughs> it's the way it goes. If it's a real thing, if you're getting real data, that's the way it'll happen, you know? Right. My question is, though, is with one of these readers, if you're around something that is electronic or metal or whatever, wouldn't it pick up a reading? So wouldn't it make sense if you're going around a car that you would get some sort of false positive reading or even being in proximity to one another or a phone or something like that? Isn't there some sort of effect that that would skew your results? Maybe if the car was on. If it's off, I wouldn't think so because it's not going to be outputting any kind of like electrical signal at all. Right. You'd have so, to have current running through it or, or yeah. something. Yeah. If the car had been on, I would completely agree with you. Mm -hmm. During the whole time that we had these meters on, no, the car wasn't running. So the lights aren't on, the whole car is off. Nothing is on on the car at all. Did you move it and try it again? No. No. Didn't touch it. I wonder if he would have followed the car. <laughs> He right. ran over his foot. Yeah. You know, again, I always look for, uh, well, one, a story like that has a, uh, when Scott and I kind of audition stories or we're, we're thinking about them from our list, if it's got a good hook to it, you know, at the end and, and the fact that the guy's daughter had the same car, mm -hmm. that gives it some context. There's a connective factor to it. It's like, you know, like Marie's story, there's a connective element to it rather than just we're sitting around and the lights dip. It's like if you're sitting around talking about grandma, then the lights dip. That, mm -hmm. to me, has a little more weight, you know? Yeah. Mm. Well, to move on to a, I guess, much thinner story, setting up my own. <laughs> well, <it was laughs> depends on if you, if you like public restrooms. Yeah. It's, a, it's this, got a lot of weight. This whole story yeah. takes place in a bathroom. I did have a chance to record it the other day and send it out to Sarah. So um, we're just going to play that, and then we'll come back and talk about it. As I've said many times on Astonishing Legends... My wife and I lived in Manhattan, New York, for almost 10 years, from late 2001, moving there five days after 9-11, actually, all the way to early May 2010. After we'd been there a few years, we found that we needed an escape from the city to stay sane, like so many New Yorkers do. And we had saved up a little money, so we bought a small cottage along the Delaware River in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. It was about an hour and 20 minutes from the city, essentially due west all the way across New Jersey on Interstate 78. And we went every weekend and whenever we could for about six years. It was our home away from home. It was kind of an out-of-the-way town, and we didn't have many friends there our age, but we did have a neighbor whom we were extremely close to. His name was Don, 
and Don and his family were all lifelong residents of the area. In fact, they owned about five houses in a row right up the street from us, and the one we had purchased used to belong to an aunt of his who had passed some time ago. Don was older, but not elderly, being in his mid-sixties when we first met him. He was retired from a local power company, but still earned money doing landscaping work for local residents, including us since we were only there on the weekends. He had a vast array of toys that our son, who was probably four or so when we first met him, was obsessed with. Riding mowers and mules, which are like off-road golf carts for the uninitiated. He would plow our driveway for us in the heavy Pennsylvania snows, showing up at our front door, waiting for my son to come join him for the ride. He was like an extra grandpa to him, but he was more than that. He was a close friend whom we frequently spent our leisure time with along with his family, at his basement bar, affectionately known as the Rattlesnake. It was fully stocked with every kind of drink and snack you could imagine, which he would serve until you didn't want any more, and refuse any kind of repayment for. We'd sit in his backyard around a bonfire, and his grandchildren and our son would make s'mores. It was a wonderful time in our lives, and he was a big part of what made that cottage by the river such a special place for us. He came over one day around Thanksgiving of 2015, to give us his customary hello as we had arrived for the holiday. But he was not feeling well. He was different. He was coughing and complaining of various aches and pains. Little did we know it would be the last time we would see him. By March of 2016, just a few months later, he had passed away from aggressive and fast-moving cancer, devastating his family, friends, and the local community at large where he had no enemies. We too were devastated by his passing. In fact, it changed our whole outlook on the area and ultimately led to us selling our home there because the entire experience of it had been changed forever and the grief and sadness were overwhelming. This is where I'm tipping my hand a little on my personal beliefs for the first time on this show, but that backstory was important. For some time after Don passed, and apologies here, because the rest of this story takes place in a bathroom. But for some time, whenever I would be shaving in my bathroom at home here in Los Angeles, I had an extremely strong and overpowering sense that Don was there, either in the room with me or behind me, or maybe even behind the mirror. It wasn't a scary feeling. It was more of a warm and comforting one. Don't get me wrong. I never saw anything or heard anything, but somehow I just knew he was there and invariably it would bring a smile to my face, while at the same time making the hair on my arms and the back of my neck stand straight up. It was only when I was shaving, though, not doing any of the other grooming I might be up to in there. But this feeling was prominent for quite a while, months in fact. However, eventually, it subsided. Was it all in my head? Am I just coping with his death? Maybe. After some time... I could no longer feel his presence in there. In fact, I didn't even really notice it had stopped, but it had. I hadn't thought about why, really. But I do know that for various reasons, it took several months for his ashes to be scattered according to his last wishes. And in the week prior to when this story took place that I'm sharing now, I had heard via text from his widow, who was just checking in to see how our son was doing and catch up. And she told me in that text, that they had finally been able to spread his ashes where he had wanted them, at two of his favorite hunting sites. He was an avid hunter his entire life. Anyway, 
This is where things got a little strange. A few nights ago, my wife and I decided to treat ourselves to a nice dinner out after she'd gotten some good news about a project she was working on. So we booked an early dinner at the Morton's Steakhouse in Burbank, about 15 minutes from where we live. I picked up our son from his after-school program, rushed him home for a lightning-fast shower, threw some nice clothes on him, and off the three of us went. We've eaten at this particular restaurant several times over the years. It's at the bottom of a large building containing offices for the Warner Music Group. So not an old structure by any means. Probably built in the 90s, I'm guessing, but I can't be sure. Now this story moves back into the bathroom. So apologies for some of the imagery, but this is how it happened. I excused myself from our meal to use the men's room in the restaurant. And as I stepped up to one of the urinals, I remembered, oh yeah, this is the place that has these plastic screens at the bottom of the urinals that say Don on them. It's a huge company, I guess, that makes commercial sanitation products. And I'd seen them before, but for some reason, whenever I was at this particular restaurant and used the bathroom, and I would see Don's name in there, I would chuckle to myself about it, kind of ribbing him in my mind about where his name was. He was that kind of guy. He loved to bust your you-know-whats or rib you about things, and had he been there, he would have gotten a good laugh out of me pointing out that his name was in the urinal. I always kind of forgot those things were in there whenever I left the restaurant, and I never had any kind of strange sense of his presence in there. I would just smile to myself and think about it. So anyway, I'm in there, and I see his name, and I laughed again to myself, missing my old friend, and when I finished doing what I went in there to do, I walked over to the sink to wash my hands. There are three sinks next to each other. I was the only one in the bathroom. All three of these sinks are Sloan Magic Eye sinks with mechanically activated soap dispensers on the counter next to them. Magic Eye is that radar that senses your hand when it's under the faucet and turns the water on for you. Although I find that they are frequently nearly impossible to operate, especially in airports, I'd never had any problems with these particular ones. So I leaned down in front of the one on the far left and started washing my hands when I suddenly remembered I hadn't really sensed Don during my shaves for several months. This was the first time I had thought about that. Then the very next thought I had was a, oh yeah, kind of moment. His widow had told me his ashes had finally been scattered according to his wishes. And I thought, huh, he must be at peace now. All this is going through my head in fractions of seconds as I finish washing and reach for the stack of nice linen paper towels just to the right of the sink I was using to grab a few to dry my hands. At that moment, I had the distinct thought and even said in my mind with a kind of calmness and relaxation about Don being in his final resting place, well, Don, I guess I won't be seeing you in the bathroom anymore. I remember laughing about that too and simultaneously thinking, I must be insane for believing any of this is connected at all. By now I'm standing straight up and I finished drying my hands, toss the paper towel into the trash through a hole in the counter and do that thing where you take one last look in the mirror to make sure nothing's out of place before you leave the bathroom. And at that very moment, the sink on the far right comes on by itself. But only for the minimum magic eye reaction time. I'm guessing about a second and a half. And then it turned back off. In the milliseconds I had right then, I thought, well, that's odd, but it's probably just a glitch. Immediately after that, the sink in the middle, the one right next to me and right next to the one I had used, did the exact same thing thing. It turned on for a second and then back off. No one else was in the bathroom. I was not moving my body at all. I was standing still in front of the leftmost sink. I was frozen. 
This is the kind of thing I might have normally ignored in life, but it felt particularly crazy in this moment. Why did those two sinks turn on like that, sequentially? I stood there for a good 10 seconds, trying to make sure I hadn't imagined what had just happened. Then, in an effort to duplicate my circumstances, I went back to the urinal I used, also auto-flush, and I manually flushed it. And then I went back and turned the water on again at the exact same sink. I thought maybe water pressure through the lines or false positives from the radar sensor might have set the other two sinks off. No effect, as Forrest says. I then left the bathroom and went back to our table. After about 10 minutes, I had the wherewithal to return and photograph the scene for reference. The pictures of the location are posted with this show, along with a video of my son at a younger age riding a snowplow with Don. Maybe it was nothing, but it sure felt overwhelmingly spiritual when it happened. This isn't a vague long-ago memory either. It was about two weeks before I recorded this. I'll never be able to say what happened there, but maybe, just maybe, it was a message from my friend Don. Well, that is probably the most paranormal thing I think Scott has relayed to me where I gave it a little more weight because it's the only thing that's ever really happened <laughs> well, no, to me okay, in a way. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, this is usually what happens since Scott and I decided to do the podcast. I remember one time in his Pennsylvania house. That's what I was just talking about in this story. Oh, yes, it is. Yeah, right, yeah, it's connected. Same exactly, house. right. Yeah. That same house. Yeah. So something maybe less... <laughs> paranormal Scott would, uh, you know, he'd send me a video like, I think the Swiffer handle just moved on its own. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yes, it was pointing straight up. I didn't walk over there. There's nobody around there. Wait, something weird did happen with the Swiffer. Well, that's what I'm saying. I can't remember what that was, though. I totally forgot (laughs) I know what it was. It it was securely propped up. Yeah. And then it just kind of fell over on its own. My point being is that it's like, okay, maybe, I don't, (laughs) that's maybe a personal, (laughs) that's a personal feeling experience where if you felt weird and then something happened, it's hard to relay that or or what the impact is. One time the uh, plate magically fell down off the stove and then we found out the dog had eaten the pizza. Yeah, that was was, pretty amazing. (laughs) But that scared everybody. Yeah. Just this plate suddenly um, falling to the ground. Yeah. Because by the time you get in there, the dog's long gone. So how did the plate that was on the stove get on the ground? I was going to say, nobody questioned where the pizza was. (laughs) No, no, we remembered How did the plate get down there? Where's the pizza? I don't think we remembered that there was pizza on it. No, I think the dog was attracted to the pizza grease because she'll go for anything that Mm, once had salami on it or pepperoni. So then there's no way to prove that other than she looks really guilty. (laughs) So it's like, well, it's got to be the dog. Well, um, I think if you had captured an EVP that time with the Swiffer, it would have been something like, clean up your house! <laughs> like, There's dust under the fridge. Or so, just would have said, pie. <laughs> yeah. said pie. Good enough for Rob Lowe, good enough for us. Pie, pie Corbin. Right. <laughs> exactly. Pie. In all seriousness, you know, I know Scott was really close to Don. Yes, I was. You know, he was like an uncle to you in a way. Yeah. 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 You know. He was older, but yeah, it right. was not like hanging out with someone from a different generation. Yeah. By right. any stretch. Right. Yeah. So you would text me, you know, you're having a great time. You send me pictures from his co The Rattlesnake, the rattlesnake bar. bar. That's yeah. it. You know, yeah. his converted basement. It was always full. I mean, he was well loved. You know, the little town. I mean, this is a nowhere town, this yeah. place. Um, coincidentally, only about 15 minutes from where our good friend at uh, Pints and Puzzles lives. 
Oh, the <laughs> TJ. Ooh, right? mm-hmm. Yeah, TJ. uh, TJ's right. in that neck of the woods. That's how I came to play blackjack with him because. When uh, my wife and I sold that house, the last night that I was there, TJ came over and played blackjack with me and yeah. my close friend, uh, Jerry, who was the guy who had the bug in his ear. In that's the, right. That's <laughs> right. Well, yeah. all of us. Uh, He's one yeah. hell of a blackjack dealer, yeah. by the way. Uh, but all, all, all of Bucks County, is there's a lot of mystery there. There's yeah, it's some, a spooky place. There's Sasquatch sightings. Place, there's UFO yeah. flaps have been there. Eastern Red Pennsylvania. Red eyes in the woods. Yeah. That kind of thing. It's there's, spooky. I love yeah. it. And again, if you're going back to just the incident of what happened... It's one thing when maybe one sink turns on by itself, but when it's two faucets, yeah, it's a little bit more I, hard it to would, ignore. It was even harder for me in that it was sequential. Yes. Because that, mm-hmm. to me, felt like something was moving. Yeah. Like, it was just bizarre. Because if they'd have both come on at the same time, I would have been like, okay, electronic glitch. I get how these things work. Right. I'm mechanically oriented. That's why I like went back and tried to simulate the conditions and see if the water pressure did it. I don't know what the likelihood of a false positive for that sensor is. I actually wanted to contact <laughs> You're going to Sloan. call Sloan. Yeah, and <laughs> like, say, look, this I'll, happened to me. Yeah. I need to know what's going on here. But I, it was the weird thing because it wasn't just the combination of them both coming on, but coming on sequentially, coming on with the one furthest from me and then the one closer to me as though something right. was moving it towards like me. Moving. And additionally, at that exact moment when I was having that very specific thought when I had just said in my head, yeah. I guess I won't be seeing you in the bathroom anymore. Yeah. And I'm just now, <laughs> when I said that, my hair is standing up. Yeah. Like I finished that thought and they came, it was like, <laughs> just like that, like it was marching towards me. Right. Just when you said that, I made the connection of like, that's exactly what happened in my story. As yeah. soon as I made that negative comment mm. about that room. The it, door slammed. The force, whatever happened, acted. Something yeah. physical happened. Yeah. yeah. So it's so, quite interesting. Yeah. It does seem like maybe I triggered it. But here's the other thing that I didn't say in the story. And it was something that I said I would talk about, to be right, fair. Right. My wife and I had been sitting at dinner that same night. We had been talking at dinner about another friend of hers who was a writer that she used to work with some time ago, one of her first gigs at Mad TV, actually. We had been to this woman's wedding and everything, and she passed away from aggressive breast cancer on short notice, just was gone. We had been talking about her at dinner, not for a super long time, but probably five minutes or so. It was just like, oh, man, you remember her? It's like, oh, yeah, I hadn't thought about her in a while, da, 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 da. And it, it was right after that that I went to the restroom. So then I said to Forrest when I told him this story, I was just like, what if I went in there and it was a ghost, but I wanted it to be Don so bad, and it was really Emily's old friend from Mad TV. <laughs> right. You know, and I completely misinterpreted yeah. it, you know, yeah. or whatever. So, you know, who knows? I don't know. All I know was that it felt not like how a mechanical problem would manifest. That is just not what it felt like. Right. It felt very manipulated. You had kind of an internal feeling. Um, Well, yeah, I froze. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you, I think you texted me right after it happened. Yeah. There's a difference though. It's a sense of being freaked out, like, whoa, that's weird that that happened. Yeah. And being frightened or feeling a sense of like, oh, he's here with me. You know, it's like that kind of warm feeling. I had that feeling that he was there with me. But I don't know if that was wishful thinking. Right. The next feeling I had was, why couldn't someone else have been in here to see it? I, a witness. Yeah. You know? well, well, that's the thing, the One time I want another person in the bathroom <laughs> yeah. with me. Right. Yeah. Well, that's, yeah. But then I probably would have thought it was them. Exactly. That's yeah. what I was going to say. Yeah. It's like somebody else walking yeah. around triggered the proximity sensor on the faucet. But see, that's the other thing. I checked them both, yeah. and they function completely normally when I put my hand under them. Now, I was going to ask you this. Do you think that it's a way of him saying goodbye, and you're not going to have any more contact from the other side? Honestly, 
the feeling that I had, and this is just a gut feeling and I don't know why, yeah. but it was what I was kind of jokingly saying, well, I guess I won't be seeing you in the bathroom anymore. And right. he was like, and the response was, oh, yes, you will. Oh, <laughs> like kind of a funny joke. I honest see. to God. I see. That's what it yeah. felt like. Because that's how our relationship, he loved to yeah, you guys rib, each rib each other each other. or whatever. Yeah, sure. You know, he made fun of my Jeep. I made fun of his pickup <laughs> truck, you know, that kind of stuff. Just, yeah. And it felt a little bit like, oh, you know, I'll come back here and bug you anytime I want. Right. You know, right. it could just all be wishful thinking and yeah. just uh, some weird glitch. Hmm. I don't know. At the same time, when people describe experiences like that, that experience is for you and for you alone. It's, yeah. I've never felt like something like that is something that That's why I'm telling 100,000 people right now. <laughs> yeah. 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 Yeah, I know. But it's like, I've had similar experiences after my dad passed away. I, I distinctly remember one morning I was in a dead sleep. And I could have been dreaming, I don't know. But I remember getting this thought in my head, and it said, well, are you going to sleep all day? And that's something <laughs> he used to say to me all the time. Yeah. I don't need anybody to tell me that it was real, it wasn't real. It was something that was meant for me. And like, yeah. that's something about these experiences that sometimes we're looking for proof of something. Yeah. When... I don't think that's really what we need. Yeah. It's there for us. That's a good point. Yeah. No, I, what I like about this story is sort of the commonplace of where it occurred. Like you wouldn't necessarily be looking for a haunting or some sort of supernatural experience to happen in a public bathroom, right? Yeah. Even a nice one, <laughs> which is sort of like, that sort of, to me, even brings a whole genre busting interestingness to it as well, because you're just going about your business, you're thinking back on it, and you're you're not expecting anything. You're just sort of talking out loud. Then it happens sort yeah. of without any context or without any warning even in some ways. It's yeah. not even a creepy locale. Yeah. The furthest thing from creepy, this place, honestly. I mean, <laughs> yeah. it's a steakhouse in the bottom of an office building that belongs to Warner Music. You know, it's just like... <laughs> you, can't get, you can't get less... <laughs> it's, yeah, yeah you can't. Have, and less creepy. One thing that I've heard pretty commonly is the idea that, and whether or not this is confirmation bias or whatever it is, mm -hmm. that when you start like investigating this stuff and reading about it and watching documentaries and whatever you'll start to notice it in your life or that's when something will happen, right? So I've had people come up to me at meetings that'll say, you know, I never saw anything. I never had a sighting of a UFO or anything like that. And then I joined up in this group and I started talking about it on the weekends. And a month later, I had my first sighting and they haven't stopped. Hmm. Or even, you know, you go on a ghost hunt or something and then it follows you back home. Which is why I don't go on ghost hunts. <laughs> <laughs> right. Let's never go to Greyfriars, right? <laughs> I wonder that myself sometimes too. If I have a experience that's going to be unexplained, is it something like one of those rules where, well, by getting interested in it, you're inviting it in. You're actually opening yourself up to that kind of experience by even talking about this stuff. I will say for me, when we started this show, I made it clear that nothing really strange had ever happened to me beyond, you know, Swiffer mops and stuff like that. And <laughs> this particular incident, the first thing that's really strange about it is this show was already a concept, this episode, and what was happening in it. And I was literally thinking, I don't really have a story to tell. Yeah. Not that night, but like probably in the days before, because I'm always thinking, Forrest and I both, we're always thinking about the show 24-7. So it's just like, oh, well, you know, we don't have to tell stories and I don't really have one and I'll just say that. And then this thing happened, which this particular event for me 
like you said about the confirmation bias, which I'm obviously aware of, and obviously I have very strong confirmation bias with this because it's a departed loved one and I want that interaction to be there. And up until that moment, I'd been having this vague feeling that had no physical manifestation whatsoever. But then this thing happened. And so then, yeah, I wonder, like you do, and I think about this when I saw that documentary with uh, Christo. What's the name of that one? Curse of the Man Who Sees UFOs. Curse of the Man Sees UFOs. And then I think again about what I already said earlier in this show, depending on how Sarah <laughs> divides this up, but uh, what I'd said about creating your own reality or just suddenly becoming aware of things that have always been there that you didn't see before. And we always come back to that sort of, it's a little bit apocryphal, but the whole thing about the Native Americans not seeing Columbus's ships because it's outside the realm of their comprehension at that moment. And I do wonder, Cogs, to your point, did I suddenly open a door? But in another way, I can tell you this, if I hadn't been doing the show and I hadn't really been thinking about this stuff as much as I have been the past three or four years now, this still would have freaked me out. But I might not have been able to say what it was. But I I think this one would have been a red flag. I definitely would have been like a little bit of a Scooby-Doo. You know? (laughs) Whereas other times, I think I've just been overlooking it. It's like in The Curse of the Man Who Sees UFOs when he walks up to that couple sitting on the seawall and he says, do you see that over there? And they're like, yeah. It's like you're looking right at it and it doesn't mean anything to you because you're trying to figure out what you're going to have for dinner and you just don't even think about these kinds of things. And it's right there in front of you all the time. So I do wonder about that. It's like a filter that falls into place, a lens for your perception. But, you know, hey, well, I don't know. It's your experience. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, we can't quantify how you felt at that moment. Yeah. So yeah. that is, I think, why these stories are probably some of the most fascinating for me personally, is that it is not quantifiable. It's just up to personal feeling. I think mm. I would be curious to know from uh, Sloan that makes the magic eyes for those, who makes them, and then if they have any relationship electronically in their design, yeah. or if they're completely independent of each other. Oh, if they're like in series? Yeah, yeah, exactly. If they're in an electrical series or parallel, or do they even draw their power from the same place, yeah. that sort of thing, well, which they probably do. They're probably yeah. on the same circuit, but I mean... Yeah. If the supernatural world can affect ours, how do they do it? How are they able to interact? Is it just, you know, random fields of energy? Again, if you're more keen to believe a lot of these stories... Some very specific things happen. Yeah. Things turning on or off or messages showing up. One of my favorites is the mysterious messages that show up on people's voicemail after someone mm-hmm. passes or on Facebook. These kind of weird, the one that was kind of freaky is a, a brother's account who, uh, he passed away. He had no one but this. his other brother had the password to his account. No one could access it. And yet strange messages were still popping up on Facebook from the deceased brother. So how do they interact? If it is possible for them to interact, how are they doing that? But it's a curious thing about the proximity sensors in your experience. And also, if it happens again, you must tell us. If you like our show, then there's a good chance you love all kinds of astonishing legends, myths, and folklore. And you probably grew up listening to a lot of fairy tales like we all did. Yeah, but do you remember that age when you finally heard the parts of those fairy tales that no one wanted to tell you about when you were a kid? Like the full story behind those Brothers Grimm fairy tales. Most adults may not even know themselves, but the full versions... 
Well, that stuff is really dark. Oh, yeah. I guess the world was a lot more grim back in those <laughs> days, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Look, if you like listening to true crime shows, imagine putting that lens on fairy tales as they were originally written. And that's the feeling this new podcast from the Parcast Network delivers called Tales. Man, the full details behind those children's stories are pretty twisted by today's standards. But as I got older, the gruesome twisted bits were the parts I really liked. I guess they leaned heavily on the cautionary elements of those cautionary tales back then. But we really like hearing the full truth. And that's what the Tales podcast delivers. Because this ain't the watered-down, sugar-coated versions you see in animated movies. Uh, no. And you might think you know the full story. But Vanessa Richardson, the host of Tales, will analyze all the dark and creepy twists and turns of some of your favorite real fairy tales and lore. Like Beauty and the Beast, which is out now all in her captivating campfire-style storytelling. New episodes come out every other Saturday, and upcoming shows will cover such classics like Little Red Riding Hood and Bluebeard and many other childhood favorites. Just be prepared, though, because these stories are going to be a lot different than what you remember. Visit Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts, and search for Tales. Again, that's T-A-L-E-S. Or visit parcast.com slash tales to start listening now. That's parcast, P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com slash tales to listen now. I am Jeremy Toomey, and you're listening to Astonishing Legends with Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Now back to the show. This next story comes to us from one of our primary members in the research core, Quaid, who not only helps us with research there, but he admins, along with Tess, our Facebook group, which uh, we're very grateful to him for. Had no idea he had this one up his sleeve. So uh, without further delay, let's roll his story. One of the most unexplainable experiences I've ever had happened to me back in college. It was my sophomore year, and I was put in a new building with a new roommate. So nothing notable really happened the first semester, besides a few weird dreams. And by weird, I don't just mean strange. I mean, like, really intense dreams. The reason the dreams were so notable is because I don't dream a lot. If I dream, it's maybe a couple times a month, if I remember them at all. And when I do, it's pretty mundane stuff. These were different. These dreams were really dark. They were dreams that... <laughs> You don't really want to share with people because how dark and disgusting they were. They were vile. They were super violent and never had dreams like that before my life. Not remotely close. And they freaked me out. My roommate would say, hey, you were sounding like you're struggling in your sleep last night. I'm like, ah, oh, just, you know, a rough night, some weird dreams. Move on. He's like, oh, yeah, I had a few of those two last week. They're weird. Rough dreams, no big deal. Obviously, I didn't think anything of that. I didn't think that maybe they were the same type of dream or anything like that. I was just like, oh. He's also had bad nights. No big deal. Nothing really happened the rest of the fall semester until one night. And I'm pretty sure this was either late in the fall semester, or maybe it was even early spring semester. But one night, I had been sleeping fine. Nothing was wrong. And in an instant, I was awake. I was terrified. I started to get up in my bed, not knowing why. My heart was racing. And I was breathing hard. And I was sweating like I'd run a marathon. And I was paralyzed in fear. Like, as I'm getting up, I just stop and I start looking around my room wondering why am I so scared and my eyes caught the corner of the room that's usually pretty well lit up darker than any other part of my room and it has me more terrified than even when I had just 
been feeling. I don't know why I was so scared, but it felt like whatever was in this corner was watching me, was staring at me. I don't know how else to describe it, but the fear I was feeling felt like I had been cornered by a vicious or rabid animal. Because it wasn't this fear of there's something slowly coming after me or it's this nonsensical fear. I don't know how to describe it, but it was a fear that made me feel like I was being stalked. Like if I moved an inch, if I tried to get out of my bed, if I moved at any way that it would notice, it was going to get me, that it was going to come after me, that the minute I tried to get out of bed, that'd be it. So now I'm laying in bed and I just, I don't know what to do. I'm just laying there like, okay, I'm going to start praying. I'm going to pray this thing goes away. I'm going to pray that I calm down, that my heart stops racing, that I can think clearly. I'm just going to start praying. And so for the next 20 or odd minutes, I'm just praying, glancing at my clock, praying, glancing at my clock, praying. My heart's still racing, praying, looking at the corner, still terrified and praying. And all of a sudden it's all gone. You know, I did this for 20 minutes and all of a sudden the corner looks normal again. My heart's slowing down. I feel safe to move. (laughs) I felt like I could climb out of my bed again, which was an odd thing to all of a sudden go from one extreme to that. But I went back to sleep after that. You know, it was a weird night. Went back to sleep and I woke up and I was fine. I was still shaken up, but I didn't know how to describe it. I was like, you know, was it sleep paralysis? I'm like, no, I was moving. Maybe that's still sleep paralysis. I don't know. I'd never experienced anything before in my life like that. And to this date, I still haven't. At that point, I just chalked it up to something crazy, maybe something spiritual. Rest of the spring semester seemed fine, normal hanging out with people. Now, I went to a religious college, and what that means is, like, Easter weekend, we would get a longer, like, four-day weekend. So you could go home, celebrate Easter with your family, and then come back to campus, you know, for people that had to travel. Now, me and my roommate had gone back in the afternoon sometime, and he had homework that he was getting done, and I went out and hung out with some of our hallmates. Now it's in the evening, maybe 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock at night, and we're directly across the hall from my room in my friend's room. We're watching Netflix or something, basically not doing the work we had to do, just procrastinating it. All of a sudden, out of nowhere, the door to their room just swings open really hard. And my roommate's now standing in the doorway, and he starts yelling. It was like a, it was a shout. And we can't, for the life of us, remember what he said. It was either... get out, like yelling, just get out. Or he was telling us to shut up. One of the two, we're all taken aback. It was that instantaneous turn, see him shout or screaming at us. I don't even know. And it made us sort of jump out of our skins. Like, where is this coming from? And he's standing there, fists clenched, almost stiff as a board, and just staring straight ahead. Not really at us, just straight ahead. And he looked angry. And he started more muffled, like a really strained shout. Like it was hard for him to get the words out kind of shouting. And it's something like, get out. And we're like, what is, oh, what? We're still crazy confused and freaked out. Like what is going on? He's refusing to like sit down. We can't get out of the room. But we all kind of came to this really quick conclusion that this might be something darker. This might be something spiritually really dark. And we decided like, what if we need to do an exorcism right here? And... Now, when I say exorcism, I'm not talking about something crazy Hollywood produced. I'm not talking about something intense and violent. I'm talking about just we're praying. We're trying to talk to my roommate and we're trying to 
help him if he is accepting the help to get rid of whatever dark entity or dark shadows, whatever is over him, away. So we broke out our Bibles. We started praying. We had worship music going quietly in the background. And he's getting angrier. Now, looking back, we could have probably handled things a little differently. But young college guys, terrified beyond all reason now, trying to solve the problem, fix what's going on. So, you know, we're, we're now sitting here and the furniture in the room, he's still standing in the room. We're praying. We're talking to him saying, hey, how are you doing? What are you feeling? We need to hear from you. And he go from being a little bit more like himself to screaming and yelling. And everything was strained. Everything was muffled, but it was all angry. And his voice, you hear about the dual vocal cord sound. It was doing that. And it was terrifying to hear because up until that point, I'd only heard about that in movies where it was synthesized, but to hear someone actually almost speaking with two vocal cord tones, and at some point, he started to quiet down. It was himself again, but he was exhausted, and he finally just kind of collapsed to the ground. He's now sort of crouched on the ground, and we're talking, he's like, they're angry. It's angry. I hate this. What is going on? And he's like, it wants me to hurt you guys. I want to hurt you guys, and I don't know why. And he was telling us that he was so angry about what we were reading, about what we were praying, and I'm like, do we need to be quieter? He's like, no, no, no. You know, he's explained to us, it's not about our volume. It's not about how we're saying It's He's like, whatever it is, hates hearing what you guys are saying. And so we're like, all right. This was now stretching into a couple hours of us just doing this back and forth of him getting super angry, then him getting more quiet, I guess, just being worn out and being him. And then we had about an hour where it was fine and everything was normal. And so we're like, okay, we're fine. He's like, hey, can someone call my mom? Let her know what's going on. I'm like, you sure? He's like, yeah, I've had things like this before. Like this, he's like, no, no, I mean, like I've heard stuff before and she knows about it. So I left the room at this time. We thought he was starting to calm down. He's calming down. We're trying to keep him calm, just keep his mind on other things, call his mom, and I let her know what's going on. She's like, all right, I'm coming. Be there soon. And this is like a two-hour drive away. And so she's driving two hours now at probably, what, midnight, maybe one o'clock to campus. So while I'm out taking this phone call, calling his mom, my friends later told me that he had another episode while I was out of the room. And he had gotten violently angry again. When I say violently angry... Tone. He never moved. He never lashed out at any of us, they said. And when I was there, he never lashed out. But what had happened in this moment that I was out of the room, he started laughing, really angry, like sort of a mocking laughter, saying obscenities at them and telling them they couldn't do anything, that this was all him and this was all what he wanted. And and they're like, no, we know that's not the case. He started like whipping his head back and forth and crazy things like his eyes rolling back in his head. And I'm like, that sounds like a movie. He's like, yeah, we know it does, but it happened. And so I'm like, well, I'm glad I was out of the room because there's no way I would have been able to keep my cool after witnessing that. And it's ramped up. I don't know what it was, but it was more ramped up. And we just continued to talk with him, to pray, to read. And this went on for another couple hours. It was, again, between 1 and 2 a.m. when we finally got him calmed down. It seemed like it was all over. What made this feel more like a potential spiritual issue, not strictly mental health, was that we decided after all it calmed down, we were all worn out. We were like, we're going to go to McDonald's. There's a McDonald's across the street from our campus. 
And we're like, we'll go walk to McDonald's, get some food, get out of the dorm, get out of that room where all this tension had been. And so we went, walked out, myself, my roommate, and two of the other guys. As we were walking there, I kept hearing noises, and I felt like I was being stalked again. Now, I wasn't terrified this time, like I was that night earlier in the year, where it felt like something had been in the room with me. This just felt like I was being watched. It was the oddest sensation where we'd be walking, and I would hear one of the deepest growls. I wish I could describe this growl better, but this growl that I kept hearing from behind and to the side of us as we were walking to McDonald's, it sounded big. It was guttural. It was rumbling. It's the kind of growl that sort of reverberated inside of you when you'd hear it. I don't know what it was. There's no animals in this area that would fit that description. And even if there were predatory animals, we had none in that area that would be big enough to reproduce the sound that I was hearing. And while we're walking, I'd be like pointing to my ears quietly because my roommate at this point, I'm like, I don't want to rile him up. So I'd point to my ear. My friend that was next to me would point to where he heard it too. And then it's like, I'm like, you're hearing it too. He's like, yeah, I'm hearing it. And we went on the whole walk like this. We heard this three or four times, this kind of stalking growl, this angry growl, like something that wanted to come at us and come closer but couldn't. Got McDonald's, went back to the room, walked back, was fine. Didn't hear anything this time. Now we got back to the dorm. My roommate's mom was there. And we chatted with her a bit. My roommate decided he was going to take a day or two, go back home, just get away from everything and relax and try to forget what had been happening, understandably. And while he was doing that, she had to let us know, like, oh, he's had dreams like this before, but nothing that's ever physically happened. And she started to describe the dreams, and they were eerily similar to what I had previous semester. And I didn't really think about it until maybe a couple weeks later. But that moment of hearing these dreams, like, that's crazy. Like, that would freak anyone out. Roommate and her ended up heading back to his hometown. And the rest of us kind of went our own ways. We're exhausted. I don't know how we slept. I don't know how we managed to get any sleep the rest of that night. But I went back to my room and slept pretty much normal, I think. So the rest of the semester went on pretty much normal. He never told me about any crazy dreams. I didn't have any more crazy dark dreams like that before. So looking back... You know, I don't know if we handled things the best we could have. And I'm sure there's things we could have done better. We tried to make sense of it. And we came at it from our shared religious beliefs, our same background. We came at it from our own personal backgrounds and sharing thoughts and perspectives on different things. And it was kind of cool, too, because we all had different degrees we were in. One of these friends was a psych student pursuing forensic psychology, but he'd also focused on clinical work. And then my other friend was a pastoral ministries major. And then I'm an art major. And we all kind of ended up agreeing that we didn't know what it was. Our gut was saying this was something spiritual. This is something paranormal, that this wasn't strictly, you know, it could have been in part, but it wasn't strictly mental health. And we're not sure. You know, this is college guys with our limited experience trying to put the pieces of a very confusing, very muddied puzzle together. It was a terrifying night. It was a long night, and it's definitely something I won't forget. After that, the rest of my college experience was completely normal. You know, the normal stresses, relationships, and schoolwork, and managing life, and all that. It was normal. That roommate actually ended up joining the Navy, so I wasn't roomed with him again. After that year, whenever we'd catch up, 
things were fine with him. Life was more normal. Nothing crazy had happened. You know, that he would tell me about. I had no reason to think he would hide it from me. But yeah, it was a weird experience to have a year start off with some crazy, dark, twisted dreams to be followed up with feeling like I was being watched by something I couldn't see to Easter night having my roommate behave in a way or to be actually possessed, depending on your take on it, that made us believe that we needed to perform an exorcism, that we needed to pray with him to pray for him. My bias might tint my belief on what happened with my roommate. I could be wrong on that. The coincidences of these events, it's hard for me to shake. And yeah, (laughs) that's my story. And hopefully I don't experience something like that again. So that was Quaid's story. Quaid is a very valuable member of the Astonishing Research Corps. Tess will be the first to tell you. He is highly active, has provided us with a great deal of really thorough information. Anything that he digs in on, he's just been uh, quite a contributor in there. Yeah, the angle we appreciate is that often it's not stuff that's readily or easily found. He looks for those angles that most people uh, don't happen across, and he's a natural-born researcher. Yeah, he really is. So how do people feel about Quaid's story in the Research Corps here? Unsettled. Hmm. I feel like... They should have called an ambulance. Yeah. 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 That's like, your that's, approach. That sounds condescending, but I'm saying that's what I honestly would expect you to say, Cogs. It's just like, we got to yeah. deal with this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I always tell people, like, listen, I spend my weekends looking for UFOs. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, I'm yeah. I, like, if this is all fake, I have bought into it in some way at least. Right? Yeah. So for me, anytime, though, someone tells me that they've had an amazing experience or something, like even Rob's personal experiences... I've said to him, you know, well, I hope you got it checked medically first. You know what I mean? Maybe not an amazing experience. To me, if if my friend was having what appeared to be some kind of physical reaction to emotional distress like this, my first reaction would be, we need to ensure that they can't harm themselves right, or others. Maybe the best way to do that would be to call an ambulance. You know, just like if your friend was drunk or your friend took, and I'm not saying that this is what happened, but you know, There have been times at parties that I've been to where people have taken too much of something and it's like, oh my God, we need to get them out of here. If your friend is having some kind of situation like this, that would be my first instinct was call an ambulance, call a doctor, get them someplace safe. And regardless of your personal beliefs of what it is, do you know what I mean? Yeah. The delineation between acute psychological distress and religious experience is very thin, you know? And it's thin enough that, I think it's worth always erring on the side of caution of putting them in a place where they can be safe. Right. Well, you should always look and consider all options when you're faced with that. I think probably in this case, you know, these are college guys. It's in the middle of the night. The sense that I got from it is that they're all so freaked out. They're not really not sure what to do. Now, I did like the fact that they did call his mother. Yes. Yeah. And she was 100%. right, and she was able to confirm and say, "Yeah, he's had other problems before." So you know, maybe that's not the very first thing they did, but they did do it eventually. And she was able to let them know. It's like, well, yeah, you need to get him to an emergency room right away, or don't worry about it. Just try and keep him calm. I'll be there. I can calm him down. I just think they're so bewildered and uh, blown away by this and genuinely frightened. It probably took a while to, like, figure out what to do about this. And I don't mean to come across as if I am, like, impugning, I guess is the word. Sure, sure. On Quaid and his friends, right? Because, like, Quaid's a great guy. I also thought it was good that they did call his mother first, right? If you're listening to this and your friend has an experience like this, always err on the side of caution. It could be something supernatural. 
It could also be a brain tumor. Yeah. Also be anything else. Right. And I'm not saying that they did the wrong thing here because who knows how you would react in that situation. Right. Right. That's the exact same thing that I was thinking. It's like after hearing the story and then like going back and just kind of rereading the story and thinking about myself in the college situation or just even now, like, I don't know how I would react to it. I think, yeah, rationally, I want to say I would call an ambulance. But in situ, like, if something like that is happening, I think it is so almost beyond the pale of what your normal reaction or your normal go-to would be that I honestly don't know. It just sort of freaks me out now even thinking about it. So, yeah, I, I, I honestly am almost at a loss of what you would rationally be able to do in that sort of situation. One thing that I think is really important to keep in mind with all of this and the experience in general is the length of time that went on. This wasn't he freaked out and then it was over and then they could call someone. It went on for hours and hours and hours into the morning. You know, his mom had the time to drive in from, you know, out of town to come and get him. And I think one thing that really stuck out to me was it's kind of like when someone is faking a seizure for like, you know, medical attention or 911 or whatever, they'll hold their hand up above them. And if it, it doesn't drop on their face, they're not really having a seizure. But the fact that this went on, Quaid even like left and went and got dinner with some one of his other friends, came back and it started all up again when he was gone, even though he thought he left it closed. And then To me, the scariest thing was when they were walking to McDonald's because, one, I live across the street from a McDonald's. (laughs) Now I can't go. (laughs) No, just kidding. Just kidding, Quaid. Um, But to hear something, to have your friend be okay and to still hear and experience things that are now outside of this friend but that are still within this experience, to me, was just haunting. And the one thing that came to my mind was the grim. I just couldn't stop picturing that as they were walking. Yeah, that's outside yeah. the circumstance of what was happening to their friend in the room. And he had calmed down. Yeah. Well, it mm. reminds me of that really creepy scene, Exorcism of Emily Rose. Mm. And I believe he's the priest is walking outside. And he just sees a shadowy figure looming in the darkness, and he knows it's the devil. There's no dialogue there, but you just see it. It's a very creepy presence of something that blacker than black shadow, and you just know. And so when I heard it, that's the feeling I'm getting, is that this thing is surrounding them. It's kind of following them, whatever it is. Like he said, there's some reason it cannot directly, like, pounce on them, but it's letting them know it would if it could. Well, again, you know, The Exorcism of Emily Rose is a fictionalized account right. of Annalise Michelle. Michelle. Right. And then there's the whole question about the anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis, right. which can exhibit similar symptoms. And uh, we're actually going to have a show, a special on that later this year. So to Cogs's point about making sure it's not a medical thing, take all precautions. I say, no, I, yeah. start the exorcism and <laughs> dial 911. <laughs> <laughs> if you're of if a good sound mind to figure that out. What I was interested in in this aspect is that, like what the Chris was saying, it's like, I would want to get this also in a way documented by authorities. Now, that has happened before. One of my favorite cases that's connected to that when we did Annalisa Michelle was the case of Lotoya Amons. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I believe in Cincinnati. And they did take her son into the emergency room. You're thinking like, okay, now doctors are going to check this out. Well, I believe a social worker that was there came in and also not an ER doc, but one of the attending uh, physician's assistants, I believe, 
came into the room, and then that's when the kid basically ran up the wall, partially onto the ceiling, did a flip over either the ER attendee or the social worker. They like w- Donald O'Connor from Singing in the Rain. Yes, but not, <laughs> not, not as, as gleeful. lighthearted. Yeah, yeah. Not, yeah, not gleeful with a bunch of joy. A little less whimsy. Right. And then, uh, so you wonder what happens. Well, apparently, according to the newspaper reporter uh, who wrote up the, the very long article on it, they ran out of the room and never came back and refused to even see or treat them. So at least you get them to a facility where this can be kind of monitored now and you're taking all these kind of precautions. And there's security cameras. Well, you know what I'm saying? It's, it's a way of, of docu- there won't be in a <laughs> medical environment. It's but. a way of documenting. And it's funny that also the McDonald's, I felt, statistically do see their share of... Uh, violence and things happening because it's they're so prevalent <laughs> you're going to somewhere that seems it's well lit it's bright there'll probably be people there it seems safe it's like that's a choice that i would like to make let's just get somewhere where at least there's other where people. there's a cheeseburger yeah we're not cutting through the woods you know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> another thing that freaked me out and of course this is biased because i know love and care about quaid is the fact that they were having such similar dreams. Yeah. He said he didn't even want to share these dreams because the word that he used really stuck out to me, vile. I can't remember the last time someone used that word and it really struck me so much. But then he comes to pass that when his mom is describing to Quaid what kind of dreams they were, they were matching up with Quaid's, his own dreams. So it makes you wonder, did that dark thing in the corner, did it choose between the two young men? Or was it following his friend. Yeah. And, and where is that mental tie? Because, you know, we've talked on the show quite a bit about that it's very, very rare, if even possible, to have shared hallucinations. Yeah. But I think what's interesting about this is that whatever was going on, if he had a medical condition, is that it, it went away without treatment. If what Quaid is saying about him going on and, right. and joining the military and the problems that would persist, that would have those kinds of symptoms, would not go away without treatment. He joined the Navy right after college or sometime adjacent to that. And uh, I guess as far as Quaid knows, he's fine after that. But there are several things going on with his story, which also makes it really interesting and compelling. The shadow person entity type thing, the sludge entity type thing in the corner, the shared dreams. You know, we've heard stories where these things individually have popped up, but this thing's got at least three things going on with it. You know, as someone who's had a lifelong struggle with, like, mental illness, basically, it is super scary. Like, I don't want to make it seem either like I am making it seem like it's not a scary thing to call someone for help, right? Like that, we deal with mental health in the United States in a horrendous fashion, if your friend seems like they are potentially becoming violent or becoming upset in such a way that calling the police or a doctor would just make them worse, that's terrifying. Yeah. And so really it does become a harder question of like, well, what does one do if every option seems bad? Right. The other thing I wanted to say was that in a lot of cases, like I think we tend to think that these extreme changes in mood or behavior are only attributable to something like a brain tumor or a brain defect or something, but they're not. They're actually relatively common psychologically, right? It's like the major delineating factor between a psychological disorder as a disorder versus as a just thing that you live with is whether or not it affects your life, like your day-to-day life. And that's in the DSM-5. You can have all of the symptoms for something like obsessive compulsive disorder or schizophrenia or something, but the biggest thing that makes it an issue that gets treated versus not treated is, is it impacting your daily life? And that's why I think it's important that everyone 
assess their, you know, how you doing, right? If you're having a hard time, if you're feeling depressed, something, whatever, go talk to a therapist. You know what I mean? Like, but I would at least say that this quick change in behavior is not so rare as I think we're saying. That being said, yeah. that's why though, in these investigations, we do look for things like outside corroboration or the growl, right? That walk to McDonald's was the thing that got me too. Yeah. And the fact that they both had the same type of dream. I think it's one of the rules, Tess, you can correct me if I'm wrong. I think one of the things that the church looks for in a true exorcism event or a true possession event is knowledge of something that should not be possible, Mm -hmm. right? So the priest has something in their pocket and the being can say, you know, you wrote the word bonanza on a piece of paper in your pocket, right? And then they're like, oh my God, it says bonanza. Cheer up, Stirk. Sorry. (laughs) Right, yeah, right, exactly. Mothman reference. The fact that they had the same dream and they heard the growl and that this had happened before, like all of those are things that to me would say something really is happening here. Who knows what it is, but something worth looking at is occurring here. I would love to hear from Quaid how this friend is doing. I hope he's doing well. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. Hi. I'm Hannah, and you're listening to Astonishing Legends with Scott Philbrook and Forrest. It's all connected, Burgess. Now, back to the show. All right, so this brings us to the next and last story from the call for entries we did within the ARC for strange stories from our Astonishing Research Corps members. And I was honestly surprised at this one that came in because, like Quaid's, it's pretty frightening and there's elements of it that stick with you and there's parts of it that I don't know I'll ever shake. And then also I couldn't believe that we'd been working with Lauren who sent this in so much and she'd been in there and been a part of the research core and hadn't told us this story because <laughs> it is just <laughs> unbelievable. Yeah, but you know what? Right? These are stories that you don't you don't share them. share them. It's very personal. Because yeah, you don't know how people are going to take them. And most of the time, they're not, I say, as open as we are yeah. to accepting that kind of thing. They just think that you're weird and we don't want to go over to your house now. Tess, can you tell our listeners a little bit about Lauren and her uh, participation in the research core? Sure. Lauren is a fantastic researcher and she really hit the ground running. She's a librarian and so she has access to wonderful articles that she shares with us and really has that diligent sense of searching for sources and making sure that she points out a bias. She points out something that's woo-woo or something that's not woo-woo but is being overlooked and should be looked into and should be taken more seriously. She has participated on every single episode since she started Uh, Not to mention, she is funny, caring, and kind. Her and I text quite a bit, and she has a wonderful sense of humor. And if you ever need an episode of a ghost hunting show to watch, ask her. She'll suggest the funniest ones ever. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. All right. Well, without further ado, we had her story recorded and edited and, of course, sent out to Ryan for a little sound design. We're going to play that now, and after it's done, we'll be back to talk about it. 
So we are on the phone with one of our researchers from the Astonishing Research Corps, Lauren, who has been an amazing contributor. And when we asked researchers in the Corps if any of them had any stories for episode 100, she submitted one that I had to walk away while I was reading it because it freaked me out so bad. So, <laughs> so I, I wanted to get her, uh, we wanted to get her, I should say, on the phone to actually tell her story. But before we start that, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, a little bit about your background? Yeah. So my name is Lauren. I am from central Kentucky, Lexington. And I run a magazine and I work in a library and I really like cats. All right. <laughs> it sounds like you are you got the life there to me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, this story, uh, I don't want to give anything away about it. Maybe you can just go ahead and uh, share it with our listeners whenever you're ready. So I want to set the tone for this story. We were having problems with something mimicking family members in my house at the time. I distinctly remember the first encounter being my father coming through the back door and he was announcing he was home and my mother, who was in the living room, was pale as a ghost whispering for me not to go downstairs, that my father was still a county away and she wasn't sure what had just happened. So that's not necessarily the story, but it's the beginning of the problems and we called this the doppelganger episode. My baby sister has really vibrantly red hair, and she's a big goofball. And at the time, she was seven, and I was just 13. And she had long red hair. She usually kept parted in the middle. And she had this really distinctive voice that she would use to talk to us, which we called the bubby voice. Um, it was something between me and my sisters. And so it was kind of a personal thing. And not a whole lot of people knew or thought about it outside of my family, which is really important. So that summer, it was in the evening, and I was standing in our living room, and I hear something talking to me from the kitchen. And I know everybody's outside watching the sunset and goofing off, and I'm supposed to be the only one in the house, but I see my baby sister and her name's Carrie, standing by the kitchen table, and she's just grinning, and she asks to play tag. So without thinking, I take off after her, and I'm laughing, and I'm really having a good time, and I get to the back of the house, and she's gone. Our house is really small. There's not really any back doors that way. The windows are really high up. There's not really any way for her to leave. And the rooms are dark, like very dark. And I got this horrible feeling in the pit of my stomach. And so I decided to just walk back to the living room. And I could see my parents on the porch. And right as I walk out there, I see my sister running across the front porch. She absolutely could not have gotten outside that fast from the back of the house unless she climbed out the window. And she had bangs. What I had chased through the back of the house did not have bangs. The haircut was totally wrong. And I remember that I started to just shake and I was weeping and I ran outside because I realized whatever had talked to me in that voice had looked like my sister and had asked to play and it was not my sister at all. And the fact that it used that voice, something my sisters and I only shared, just made it 
feel that much more violating for some reason. And uh, I actually didn't mention this encounter for a while because it felt so weird. And I was 13 and I was scared and I didn't think my parents were going to believe me because it was really wacky. So about a week later, my middle sister is in the kitchen with one of her best friends and Carrie comes down the hallway towards the kitchen and the hallway's dark, the back rooms are dark and Carrie kind of stands in the kitchen but she's kind of in the shadows and she's talking to my middle sister Rachel and her friend and she's using the bubby voice and so they kind of talk to her for quite a while until Rachel kind of realizes the hair's wrong. This thing has hair parted in the middle and no bangs and they just took off. They just ran. And we really, after that, didn't have any more issues with the doppelganger. But things got a lot wilder after that. But that's a whole other story. So I, that's about it. Okay. So, and who was Rachel again to you? My middle sister. Your middle sister. And you said that Carrie's hair, it was parted in the middle, but she had bangs. And this thing that you saw, the hair was parted in the middle without bangs. Yeah, it was a huge difference. And the bangs she had, were they just like typical straight? I don't, I don't know what year this was really, but like, was it like a bear claw or more just like a... I, it was the blunt, uh, the, the blunt, blunt straight across bangs. <laughs> All right. Yeah. The hair parted in the middle, was that from earlier in her life or did she always have bangs? That had been her haircut two or three days previously. Oh, so it was recent. Yeah, and my mother had cut Carrie's hair about that time. So we'd seen Carrie with the bangs for about a few days. So we knew that was her actual haircut. And that was what really disturbed me was I should have known that the hair was wrong when I saw it. What does the bubby voice sound like? Um, I know just, it, you're probably going to feel silly doing this, but it's, it's important to the story. Okay. So the bubby voice is kind of goofy sounding. It's Literally like if Pee Wee Herman was talking while he was laughing, sometimes we would get really goofy and we would just look at each other and go, Bubby, over and over. <laughs> <laughs> so okay. it was really innocent sounding. So when you first encountered this being, what did it say to you in the Bubby voice and before you chased it to the back of the house? I know that it asked me to play tag. So if it was talking in that voice, it would have just been like, Bubby, catch me, or something like that. That didn't initially kind of give you a creepy feeling. You said you were laughing and uh, having fun chasing her. Yeah, it was that personal voice that we used that nobody else did. So it just seemed fine. Well, what do you think was the cause of this? Do you think it was something about the house? Was it some kind of spiritual entity trying to just interact was it good or bad? I mean, I know you had a creepy, as anybody would, a horribly creepy feeling after you realized it wasn't your sister. But what do you think the purpose of this was? Or, or is there any kind of purpose to this? That's a really complicated question for me, because the doppelganger episode was one of many different, very creepy, very almost traumatizing events that happened in that house. So... We had moved in when I was 12. Things were fine. About that time, we start seeing the doppelganger. It was definitely not good, and we called it the doppelganger, but it was absolutely some kind of entity that would show up later that was mimicking family members. So it was 
wild for years in that house after this. How old were you when the episode happened with your dad coming home early? I was 13. They were fairly close together. And your mom, she was like, oh, well, this is happening again. Don't go down there because he's not here yet. She was sitting on the couch where she could see directly where dad would have come in. And um, we weren't really sure what was going on at the time. We knew something was kind of off about the house. And when I ran in to see my dad, my mom was actually pale. I mean, just scared to death sitting on the couch. And we agreed that it wasn't my dad. He wasn't there yet. But we had both heard it. You guys were upstairs and that was downstairs where you heard it. Yeah, pretty much. So do you think it was something connected to the house, something about that location, the house itself? Or do you think it was centered on a family member? I think it was centered on the entire family. Something had just tried to focus in on all the members of the family and tried to be a weird member of it or being an interacting member of it. You know what I'm saying? The difference being like if you went to like a haunted theater and you all had an experience, that might be more associated with the place itself. But here, in that way, though, there's something that it it keyed in on just you and your family members. I never felt like whatever it was liked us very much. Mm. It tormented all five family members in different ways. My parents actually just moved out of the house this past summer. They dread going back there to work on it. We're not really sure. Um, We had just strange encounters for years. And we actually did have somebody who worked with a paranormal team up in New England who would regularly receive like pictures and audio from us. And he kept an eye on the situation because it was that bad. My dad was a pastor and we just weren't sure what to do. Wow. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. Over the, how long a period? Is it a decade or where are we at here? I'm 26 and I was 12. So it was about 14 years, 13, 14 years. Of continuous activity? Of continuous activity. Oh my God. That's always the question yeah. though, why some people will stay there. And I get it because, you know, it's difficult to move and It's all spread out. This wasn't like 14 years of activity in a weekend, which would just make people flee. But obviously, throughout that time, was the activity kind of even out? Was it kind of spread out and happened regularly? Or was there a period of time where it seemed to be more active than others? It was a good mix of both. I think there were periods where it was very tame activity. And so we were really used to it or we just weren't noticing it. And then there were periods where things were just a lot scarier than we even knew what to cope with. Um, And those were usually the times that we either had a pet pass away or one of our major appliances, like the washing machine, would just go out. I mean, we had to buy three in that house, and we weren't really sure why. So can you detail some of the incidents that, I mean, you don't have to do them all. That's obviously a long time. But what kind of things come to mind when you think about it? Some of the more frightening ones, I guess. God, there's so many to choose from. They're all so creepy. This involves me and my mother. It started when I was 12, and it was a little girl in a white dress, which you hear about it all the time on ghost shows. So it found it feels kind of cliche, but um, it was a girl in a white dress with really long curly hair and about the same height as me and my sister's. 
And she would come down the hallway to my bedroom door every night. And she would just stand there and watch me sleep. And I'm 12. I don't actually believe what I'm seeing for a really long time. But I know that I'm very uncomfortable. So I can't sleep at night. Finally, one day, I see her run through the living room. And my mother is actually standing there with her back turned. She felt it go past. And so at this point, I hadn't said anything to my family. I thought that I was going to either get in trouble or they were going to think that I was crazy. So one night at dinner, my mom, you know, we were sitting there together and I looked at her and I said, Mom, I said, I have to tell you something. Please don't get mad. I don't want to get in trouble. But I saw something in the living room and I've been seeing it in my bedroom doorway for a while now. And she asked me to describe it. So I did, you know, long hair, white dress. She looked at me and she said, I've been seeing that walking down the hallway. She said, I sent your dad out several times, I guess, to make sure that it wasn't one of us sick. So my dad would get up and look for this thing. And she said, when it would go past the bedroom door, it walked with a limp. And I guess that it was on its way to my bedroom door. And we didn't sleep with our bedroom doors open anymore after that. Did that seem to stop it from entering the rooms, having the doors no. closed? No. Yeah, I was going to say, does no. it care about doors? <laughs> well, <Not> really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was. Ugh. Well, did you ever research then the previous owners of the house or maybe a story that had happened there for the cause of all this? They were our neighbors. They moved from that house to the one across the street. They been watching it for a while. And they sat on the porch and ate popcorn and watched you guys or like <laughs> I mean not popcorn, but they sat on the porch and would like talk and like drink together and I mean they would see us outside all the time. And I think at one point my mom actually my mom and dad might have tried to ask some questions. But it was just uh mother and father and their daughter and uh they never said anything to us when they moved. They were straight across the street. I feel like if they knew anything they were just not going to tell us, but I genuinely don't think they knew anything about it. Now, to be clear, though, you're talking about the family that lived in the house prior to your family. Mm -hmm. They moved out of the house. They moved across the street. You moved into the new house. Mm -hmm. But that's about all you know about the history of the house. Oh, yeah. How old was the house? 30 or 40 years old when we moved in, built in the 70s. Okay. So it wasn't super, super old. Right. What about the land that it's on? Do you know anything about the area? I do a little bit, and it always made me wonder because we lived near an area called Plantations. Mm -hmm. And when you drove past, there is a nice big white house, which really creeped me out because I guess that it had been a plantation area in Grayson at the time, way back when Grayson was part of the Civil War. And uh, there were always rumors that there were unmarked slave graves in the hills and plantations. And we actually lived a quarter of a mile from this little area. And we would walk up there a lot as a family. And that was the thing that made me wonder what was going on in my house. <laughs> we lived that close to something that dark. Sure. Right. Had a lot of historical uh, resonance to it. Now, the little girl, though, you saw in the white dress, that was not like a doppelganger of the neighbor's little girl, right? Mm -mm. No, my mom said it actually looked like all three of us, all three of her daughters. Oh, that's not good. 
Yeah, uh, it was. I mean, I remember looking at it and it had my hair. I have really long curly hair and um, it was the exact same. It's just that it was an older looking white nightgown that it was in. It's like the thing. It's trying to approximate a person or a single person out of like, you know, an amalgamation of uh, several people that it was close to. Mm -hmm. Why did they stay in the house so long? They both have jobs in Grace and Still and... Mm. They were just trying to save up enough money to leave. They talked about it for years. And out of nowhere, honestly, they were offered a house in a different county near my dad's church for a very affordable price. And they just took off. I mean, they were over it. Oh, my gosh. And it's a really nice house that they're in now. And it's very light, no issues. But they have to go back to that old house occasionally, and they hate it. Why do they have to go back? Have they not sold it? No, it's the last time I went, my dad was really close to patching up like holes and Uh replacing parts of the floor. And I had actually not been in it for a year and it just did not feel any different. It was still just as dark and stuffy. And I had actually found the old iron crosses that we kept in certain parts of the house where we had seen some of the scarier things. I found all of those in there. That was a little unsettling. So he's just trying to get it ready to get on the market, I guess. And then, yeah. And what had happened with your pets? My parents love guinea pigs. We just love guinea pigs. I don't. <laughs> I don't know. They have several. Well, they're cute. <laughs> they're they're really sweet. Yeah. But they're really fragile, and we just had heart issue after heart issue after heart issue. We had one guinea pig that would repeatedly get cancer. And these are all issues that you can fix with guinea pigs, but they're kind of expensive. Sure. And, I mean, they would be perfectly healthy, and then you would have some sort of odd occurrence in the house, and the next thing you know, one of your pets is really sick. And we had issues with our outdoor cats, too. They would get sick, or they would scream at us a lot, but not in a cat way. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, it was kind of disturbing. So has anything happened since then? Hopefully nothing's followed any of the family members since you've moved out. I mean, I know you have to return to the house uh, to work on it, but since you've all kind of left the house, has it all quieted down? Maybe for my parents. My baby sister actually asked if I was even going to talk about it. We've had some pretty strange occurrences in our current apartment. I actually thought I saw Carrie walk into my bedroom last week. And I ran out of the kitchen and was looking for her, and she was in her her own bedroom cleaning. And I asked her, I said, were you just in my bedroom? And she said, no. And I said, well, something the same height as you walked right into my bedroom just now, and I don't know who it is. And I came in here and looked, and there was nothing, nobody. So That's the room you're in now? Yeah. Oh, that's great. Well, so... uh, (laughs) This thing that you saw was her same age and height, and it w- had matured to the same level that she's at now. It wasn't a child anymore. Mm-mm. We we are really not sure what's going on in this apartment, and my middle sister lives on the other side of Lexington in her own apartment, and she's had her own fair share of extremely creepy experiences. <sighs> it's exhausting. Yeah, I can imagine. And But your parents have been back, because I was going to say, you know, sometimes unawareness of this kind of stuff runs in the family. Thought maybe it's genetic to uh, be more aware than others of unusual stuff. But in this case, your mom is doing okay in their new house. Yeah, it's 
bright. I mean, they have really big windows. It's very light in there. There's no hint of oppression or darkness like at the old house. I actually enjoy going to see my parents now, whereas I didn't used to at all. Did you guys, over the course of all that time, do anything to try to exercise what was happening in the family home? Sort of. We did what we could. We would pray a lot where my father is a pastor and he has been for 20 years now. He would go through the house and pray as often as he could because we just really were not sure what to even do about it. Did that seem to have any effect? Yeah, sometimes it got worse. (laughs) Oh, geez. Wow. It's a pretty amazing story. Something I wanted to ask you at the top that I forgot to ask you is, uh, what drew you to the Astonishing Research Corps? I started listening. (laughs) (laughs) The story? It was Mothman, actually. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Where um, I'm from, it's eastern Kentucky, and we're really, really close Mm -hmm. to Point Pleasant. Sure. And we grew up hearing about Mothman, and one day... Sometime last year, I thought, I really need to know more about Mothman. I have no idea where it came from. And so I started listening to the Mothman episodes, which led to uh, Skinwalker Ranch Mm -hmm. and the Count of St. Germain. And it just kind of snowballed from there. And listening to podcasts was a healthy hobby. But actually getting to research for you guys has been an even healthier hobby for me. I just enjoy it a lot. Well, thank you so much. We are so lucky to have you. We're really glad to have you in the Research Corps. You've been a a great contributor. Well, thank you. Have you listened to the sludge editing? You know, (laughs) this is where it gets kind of creepy, and this is something that (laughs) it's the big mama part of it, and it's something that I think my mom might be the only one that knows about it because she's the only other person that's seen this thing, Mm -hmm. but the sludge entity that that family encountered that had the like spider-like quality to yeah, it. Yeah. I actually tried to contact that team after I listened to those episodes because as soon as I heard the spider qualities of it, I got cold. Like I really thought I was going to pass out on the floor because what we had seen before we we were able to move out of the house was this thing that lived in our attic And I had seen it once and I don't normally run from stuff like that because I can kind of convince myself it's not there. And I was the only one in the house and I opened up my parents' closet door and it was there and it looked like it was spider-like, like that entity was. And I remember I, I just turned tail and I ran out of the house as fast as possible. So you actually saw it? Yeah, my mom saw it maybe a month or two after that and I had not told her what it looked like at all. I just said I'd seen something and she described exactly what I'd seen in the attic. And it it was really frightening. Okay. So that was the story I was not expecting to come out of Arkapalooza. I have to say, I've had a hard time since I heard it and since I recorded it with uh, Lauren not thinking about it pretty much every day. (laughs) (laughs) Really? That's your skinwalker of the personal anecdotes. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the first part of her story, the doppelganger part. Cogs, go ahead. I just want to say, so this is Chris Cogswell, by the way. I mean, you just said Cogs, but yeah. I'm just trying to <laughs> try to live within your box, Scott. <laughs> yeah, try to get away from so, the, make the sure moniker. People know. I just, I just want to say, when I started my show, or when I started, I guess, Astonishing Legends, really, the first one of these stories that scared me this bad was Rob's personal experiences 
because I trust Rob. And so when Rob told me the weird stuff that happened to Rob, I was like, oh my God, no. <laughs> then I read Quaid's story when he put it up on the Archipelousa thing. And I was like, what? This happened to this guy? This one? Because I have said previously that one of the scariest consistent nightmares that I've had my entire life has been about doppelgangers. Yeah. Um, And Katie thinks it is stupid and not scary at all. And I can't wait till she hears this episode (laughs) because she's going to be so scared. I cannot wait (laughs) where I have always had these dreams where at my mom's house, I go down the stairs to the kitchen and from our kitchen, like our window, you can see our backyard and our pool. And so I'll come downstairs and I'll be like, Oh, Hey mom, like what's for breakfast? And she'll be like breakfast. You already ate. And I'm like, what? And then she goes, yeah, you're out by the pool. And another person is out by the pool and they come running up at like extreme speed to the house with this big scary grin on their face, Mm. right? So the fact that this story involved a doppelganger, I'm not even kidding, has been freaking me out consistently every night. It's so scary, this story to me. I don't even think it's just the fact that it's a doppelganger, but a doppelganger that isn't fully loaded in the sense that it was three days behind. And what does that mean? I think that little detail that one had bangs and one did not really, really stuck with me because Mm -hmm. it's like whatever it is has been watching this family and that's how it knows what the Bubby voice is and that's a deeply intimate thing. You know, I have a younger sister, Grace, and we do goofy stuff like that too, but we never really even say it in public. So the only way anyone would know, supernatural, paranormal, human, whatever, would be to sit and listen every day. So the yeah. fact yeah. that clearly something is listening and that it was off by a couple days, but it clearly had been wanting to make an appearance really flipped me out. What it reminds me of is when I was a kid, my mom can't hear anything. Like, she's deaf but she still pretends like she can hear stuff. And so I used to sleep in the basement because I was a cool teenager. (laughs) And my mom's bedroom was up on the second floor of our house. And so for her to get my attention, she would yell downstairs. She would yell, Christopher! (laughs) As loud as she could. And like, you could hear it across the street at my friend Richie's house. So his Uh. parents used to make fun of me when I'd go over. They'd be like, oh, your mom's calling Christopher! (laughs) Right? (laughs) When me and Katie started dating, we would be like hanging out in the basement of my room and I would swear that I would hear her saying Christopher when it wasn't happening and it was just our heater. But I had just been like, it's like Pavlov's dog. I had been trained to the point that like I was like, you know, like Dora, (laughs) Dora's here. Oh my God, right? So yeah, it's something tricking you. Oh, so scary. Was that a dream that was recurring about breakfast, about being made breakfast or that anecdote you just told? Yeah. Did that, that was a recurring dream or did that really happen? No, that's a recurring dream. Okay, that's what's interesting because <laughs> that just reminded me of uh, one of the better doppelganger stories. By the way, Lauren's doppelganger story is one of the best I'd ever heard. Not for her personally, of course, because it's horribly traumatic, but just in its thoroughness and uh, pervasiveness and just reoccurring and and how detailed it is. But I did hear one on Jim Harrell's campfire where this guy was, it was in his childhood home. He'd gone downstairs or uh, he basically, he could hear his mom in the kitchen from whatever room he was in. And he could smell bacon cooking with eggs and like, oh, the mom's got breakfast going. All right. And he runs in there. There's no one in there. Nothing's being cooked. Mm -hmm. His mom comes in from the laundry room. He's like, what are you doing? And he's like, I heard you in here. Yeah, I smelled breakfast being made. It's like, no, I'm doing laundry. I haven't made, I haven't started it yet. Mm-hmm. To expand on Tessa's idea, it's maybe being watched, but also if, again, if you go down the line of belief here, that they have access to our brains and our memories. And one of the tests being, 
has it said anything that it should not know that you've never said to anybody? That's a freaky thing. Is it's that the Voight comp test? <laughs> Blade Runner. Yeah. Well, that's all. That's all physical response. You know, it's like I, you don't know what a tortoise is, and you start sweating. Yeah. Then we know this is something about the dreams. It goes back to Quaid's story about something has access to our brains and our memories and the pictures that are stored in there. And I wonder. It's like Tess said. It was. That's ah, three days behind. You know what? I can't do bangs right now. We're just going to go with parted down the middle. This will freak them out well enough. <laughs> Or is it something about my mother? (laughs) (laughs) Let me let me have her cook bacon for you, but she won't really be there. I have a theory about what the purpose is, but go ahead. I would argue it's Marie. I would argue that it's not accessing anything, but it is you. Like the idea of the doppelganger is the other of the self, right? So (laughs) it's just. (laughs) Wait a second. Hold on. We we, we're all on Skype here, and Tess is. Fervently shaking her head no. Yeah, this face is just like, like, like she doesn't like it. She doesn't like your idea, Maria. I'm scared. No, I'm scared. I'm scared. I live alone. I don't want to. There's no more room for anyone in my family. There's there's one test. That's plenty. Oh, test. Test and evil test. Don't say it's going to come true. It's going to come out of my clothing rack. Who is that behind you, Tess? Don't do that. Okay, Maria, go ahead. Sorry. Sorry, Maria. That's okay. I mean, that to me is the more scary thing. It's not some evil entity or some other thing that's observing me and that's learning my family. It is me. It is a part of me that already has all of this. It already knows how scared I am of things or what my vulnerabilities are or what my fears are. And that's what's come to life is the idea of the of the other, the doppelganger. That's a whole other theory. People want to, they want to categorize this and define this because I think that's a lot more not as unsettling as not knowing what's going on here. But I don't think there's any one answer. I think there could be several different things going on there. But to your point, that's often been reported with several famous cases and being famous that uh, there was a ton of witnesses there about the doppelganger or the Vardoger, which that's the um, Scandinavian version, maybe Norwegian of the duplicate you. The other one that goes the common story is that there's a version of you, an echo that precedes you in a doppelganger, Doppler kind of way there where people have seen somebody come in and uh, they're like, hey, Joe, how's it going? And it's like, he doesn't respond. He looks straight ahead, walks through a crowded place. Five minutes later, the real Joe comes in. And he's like, hey, everybody, how's it going? It's like, Joe, you, you just walked out the back. Yeah. No, I just showed up now. Like, well, then who the hell was that? five minutes ago. So that might be a separate thing going on that is maybe something towards what Marie is saying. It's like an echo or a version of you that's somehow being projected or that people are seeing. This may be a case, though, of something that is just mimicking. That's my theory, is that it is mimicking an image, a persona of somebody that you know for other purposes, definitely for something that it wants to get from you. And that's inclusion into your headspace, your emotional space, your spirituality. This is Rob. And to further expound upon that, I have heard from multiple different friends just in the last year. They have these stories where they will hear what sounds like someone in their kitchen, in their living room, or something like that doing, making sounds that are familiar to them that they do all the time. They go down there. Nobody's there. The person that they think is doing it comes in about an hour later and they mimic the same exact actions. That is terrifying to me. Also, to Marie's point, 
and I think Rich Adam might have touched on this when he was on yeah. at one point. Yeah. There's that great story in The Supernatural, that book by uh, Whitley Strieber and Jeffrey Kripal, about this masseuse who was in the process of giving a massage. He looks in the mirror and he sees himself as a gray alien giving a massage to this person. So is this something, a manifestation of our subconscious? And somebody had actually brought up an interesting point that I had never even thought about with the abduction phenomenon. And like, what if this is just a manifestation of our own loneliness? That's terrifying to even think about. Like, it's more terrifying if it's not external to yourself. This is a part of you. Terrifying. Yeah, I'm with you on that. To go against the grain a little bit about it being yourself, one thing I think is important to keep in mind with this story is the doppelganger or the mimicker or whatever was taking Lauren somewhere. It yeah. asked to play tag. It mm-hmm. requested something or even demanded. It wasn't a question. It was tag. Like, I want to play mm-hmm. tag. Right. And then it took her to the darkest, furthest part of her house. Away from her family, mm-hmm. who were all outside, out front. And what does that mean? And where, you know, maybe it's request. It's not even requesting. It's demanding come with me to the back. I'm going to chase you. And then I'm going to leave you here in the darkest part of the house. And Lauren had talked a lot about throughout, you know, her stories that that house compared to her parents' new house and where Lauren lives now um, in her apartment, that that house felt dark and oppressive and all consuming. So the fact that that doppelganger led her to the darkest part of the house, I don't think that's an incident. And I don't think Lauren wanted to go there. This is a thought that I've had a couple of times over the years and just kind of, I'm just now rereading Communion by Whitley Strieber. And in that book, they talk <laughs> <This guy's> about... <laughs> I'll see, okay, I'll be back in a minute. No, I'm kidding. In that book, they talk about the commonalities between the cases. There's actually one area that's extremely interesting about all of it. And another part of this too, I think, that kind of gets into the whole grand unified theory of the paranormal is... One of the earliest types of paranormal stories, one of the most common ones that we see to all cultures, as far as I can tell, is the idea of a will-o'-the-wisp or some kind of beckoning creature, right? That, uh, yeah, Pukwudgie. That tricks the, you. Yeah. Right, that, mm-hmm. that in the deepest parts of the forest, in the swampiest bogs, in these dark places, entices travelers, entices strangers to come to them seeking whatever rich is to just, you know, go come this way, this way, right. Calling your name and in so doing causing you to disappear, meet your demise in some way. And when I heard this story of the doppelganger, and it's very similar to stories, I think like Rob was saying of abduction, it is really in some cases, right? Because you're, especially when you start getting into like really high strangeness stuff where you start talking about implanted memories of owls looking at you through the window or Mm. beckoning you out into the trees or something was calling me outside. This idea of kind of being called to and then answering that call, it's a very scary thing. It's a very human thing. But the thing that struck me about this story the most was the fact that how long you guys been doing this podcast and the best story we've ever talked about was under our noses. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Like legitimately, this story of the doppelganger The fact that it was her family experiences, it wasn't just her. This isn't your father. Don't go down there. That is terrifying. (laughs) I honestly, I think this is one of the best paranormal stories I have ever heard. I love this story. I don't love it. It terrifies me. (laughs) I know what you mean. And like in the early 
Missing 411 books, Dave Politis has these stories in there about these kids remembering being taken the way they describe them as almost like shape-shifting animals. They had animal characteristics and almost human characteristics. And where they ended up finding them were like one kid I remember was found in the middle of this swamp, but it was like on a tiny little island and there was water all around it. The kid was dry. It wasn't wet at all. So they had no clue how the child got there. And another story from the Mount Shasta area, this kid ends up going missing and they end up finding him, I think like a day or two later. And he talks about how he went and spent time with his quote unquote robot grandma looked exactly like his grandma that his family was out there but she had weird mannerisms and stuff like that. So like the doppelganger stuff in those terms, yeah, how does that connect in? Because it seems like, hey, maybe there are threads here that connect that to it. So that's even more terrifying. To kind of bring it back to Lauren's story, I'm really interested in talking about kind of the second part of her story that her entire family experienced yeah. and how that also relates to a doppelganger because she tells that story of, of that little girl I mean, what is more haunting than a child? You guys that have kids, if a little kid came to my bed and was standing over me at night, even if it was my own child, I would not hesitate to karate chop it. I'd just like, get (laughs) away. One thing I found really interesting was she didn't really describe the little girl besides saying, you know, she looked familiar, kind of like her sisters and had red hair like her, but then her mom described it as looking like all three of her daughters at once, Um, which to me really added that extra level of bringing it back to the original doppelganger story of what is in this house mimicking them? And is it even a doppelganger? What is yeah, going it's, on? It's like it went in no, the, it's the, some kind of blender. As I said, out. it's the thing or it's Terminator 2 yeah. where it's it's in a death rose and it's just like, I'm just picking out everything I can think of. Yeah. Especially like in Terminator where it's just, it's going through all the characters it's touched. Yeah. It's a lot like the Skinwalker wolf, right? When they first see this wolf, It looks like sort of a wolf, except it's big. It's acting like a wolf thinks it should act in some ways, but there's something uncanny or sort of missing about it. So it's almost like whatever's posing as a family member is trying to approximate that behavior as much as possible. Run human program. Yeah, but it's Mm. in a way that is just falling a little bit short. Yeah, that's the common thread. It's all these things. It's uh, Indrid Cold, like, everybody smells this much, right? Uh, Don't be afraid. (laughs) Or what Rich Haddam says, like, it spends all its time trying to convince you not to be screaming in terror. Right. But it just doesn't really get us. Something that Rob said earlier, human emotions does not clock. And something that Rich Haddam had written into the screenplay for The Mothman Prophecies, and one of my favorite lines is, what do they want? It's like, well, their motivations aren't human. Right. This is what blows my mind. You're not going to understand it. You have to stop asking. That's like mm. when I want Forrest to get, you know, one of those super hipstery text tattoos on the inside of his <laughs> forearm. <that's, laughs> this is, and this is his quote. He came up with this. I, or, or he says he maybe he got it somewhere else, but I love yeah. it. It's, Live with the question. Oh, that is from a, <laughs> No, that's also from a That's movie. a t-shirt. Yeah. yeah. Well, I can't decide on the font. I was thinking Comic Sans. <laughs> That yeah. very no, that was from uh, the New Age. Yes, that's yeah. right, Peter uh, Tolkien. So to get back to that, though, what the deal is that it wants something, and there is, I don't believe, any kind of type that it's going after other than human. I actually wanted to pop in really quick and say that Lauren 
told me the end of the story, which oh. um, I don't think she said on air. Okay. Um, but we were texting. I was like, oh, we're, you know, we're going to record soon. And she said, oh, I have something really important to tell you that this little girl did go away. Um, Lauren said that one night she was fed up and she told her to leave. And the little girl looked at her and drug her nails like all the way down the hallway and left and never came back. Nope. Can I just say nope? Nope is going to be my reaction to that. I have an interesting aside to that. The story I told that was on last week about the one investigation that we did where the investigator came away with a gash on his back. Yeah. We had took a break at a certain point because it was really intense in that house. You could just really feel it. And all of a sudden, they're like, well, what are we going to do? And they all looked at me like I had the answer. And I'm like, okay, this is what we're going to do. I took the homeowner into the house. And in every single room, I told her to yell at the top of her lungs for whatever the heck is here to get out. She went from room to room to room to room to room. Never had a problem after that. Hmm. So that's kind of interesting. I don't remember if this is part of the story. Does her family still live in that house or own that house? They don't, right? No. Uh, her parents moved to a much what she calls lighter and airier and a house hmm. with much more windows. And Lauren lives in an apartment away from her parents as well. Sure. I would be fascinated to actually talk to the new homeowners. They still own the house. They're working on it. They're trying to fix it up to sell it. And then on top of that, Lauren lives with her sister and they are experiencing issues in the apartment as well that they're in. There could be an attachment of some kind. Mm -hmm. It makes me wonder what counts as evidence. The barrier for what counts as evidence in a scientific sense is different than what we consider to be evidence in a legal sense versus what we consider to be evidence even for our own personal life. Right? Like, sure. The question for me always of like, what would convince me? Like, I, I've talked before about how the Kakowski intruder episode is one that I felt a lot of connection to because, again, that same idea of like feeling a vibe that like something's off here, something's weird about this place. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, that ability or that like idea, I would be fascinated to do that test of like, you get a bunch of people, random people together, 50, 100 people. And you're like, okay, we're all going to walk through these four houses that are on this block. And I want, at the end of it, you guys to tell me which houses do you think have had ghost sightings? Right. Or which ones do you get a vibe from? We'd have to do the test differently because that, my friends that are statisticians, any statisticians listening to the show right now are ripping their hair out. (laughs) Like, no, you're giving them the clue. Right. You're going to get so many false positives, right? But like, I always wonder about that. They always talk about like Ed and Lorraine Warren, they'd walk into a home and they'd be like, oh, I feel a dark presence. Does she just say that at every place? You know, she goes into a burger game and she's like, oh, it's, oh, I hear the screams, right? The blood, it's terrible. (laughs) One of our earliest hosts on the show, Mark DeAndre, made a joke about that when we did the story on Yvette Vickers about driving oh, up to yeah. the house and you'd be like, oh, that one's, he was making a joke about it's that one. And then, no, it's the one next door. Oh yeah, that <laughs> one's really spooky. But I will say though, when you do see the the actual house, just the look of it is a little off-putting because it's got like little, uh, we described it at the time. The of Vickers house. Location, location, location. Yeah. yeah Historical but, home. Well, lots of history. Yeah, lots well, of like, history. <laughs> new carpeting. So, But here's the deal. <laughs> the little windows up top are those creepy little Disneyland windows from 
the Thunder Express uh, mountain train ride. You know what I'm saying? They look fake. There's yeah. something off-putting about the house other than the vines growing all over it. But yeah, the person or is it the place or is it yeah. a combination of both? And it's like, yeah, if you said like, well, which one of these houses do you think is haunted? Well, yes, you, of course. The, you've already seeded that. Like, well, one of these is? Maybe they're all haunted. You know, is it the person picking something up? There's something I want to bring up that might dispel a common misperception here about both of these cases, Lawrence and Quaid's. And it has to do with maybe the type of person that experiences these things. Now, a lot of listeners will have picked up on this, and we've had some comments before come in about other stories that we've done. You may have noticed that they both have some connection to religion. Quaid was at a religious school at the time, and, you know, so there's some people taking some kind of theological studies as well. Lauren, you know, her father was a clergyman, a minister, I believe, and so you might be thinking, of course, naturally, like, oh, well, because they're very religious, of course these kind of things have happened to them, they're predisposed to it, and maybe their religion or family members or their own beliefs are really cranking this thing up to a high degree. But we just want to let you know that that's not entirely the case. These things happen to religious people. They happen to people who are undecided, agnostics, and they happen to atheists as well. And one great thing I wanted to mention is like one of the more fascinating episodes on uh, that documentary, The Nightmare, which we talk about occasionally here. But one guy was, yeah, he was a hardcore atheist. I didn't believe in any of this stuff until it happened to me. And now it, it converted him to a believer. I don't know what faith he is, but it totally changed his mind. So the thing that I'm wondering, though, is that anecdotally, yes, maybe you, we do hear more stories and accounts from people who are predisposed to uh, religious beliefs, and maybe less from people who are, uh, you know, avowed atheists. But is it because if these things are happening in equal amounts, or maybe they're not, but they do happen to people who have no faith, are they just less likely to tell people because, or have pushed it out of their mind, because that's not possible? Well, also you get to the, you know, the choose a form argument, which is <laughs> well, like, if it's going to choose a form, yeah. you're working with a, a richer target that's easier to affect. Right. Scott's it, talking about Ghostbusters, by yeah, the way. Yeah, I am making movie. a reference to <laughs> Ghostbusters there, which is, that led to Stay Puffed. But I mean, the point is, in terms of something otherworldly like this, trying to influence an atheist or an agnostic, maybe it's a harder palette to work with. And so it's less likely to happen, Or, but it's not that it isn't going to happen. It's just right. that I'm going to have to really go the extra mile to connect with this particular individual. You know, I think it all goes back to, there's a myriad of uh, reasons and some we may never understand. I think the connecting factor here is that a lot of times it's just the place. It's like uh, with a sludge entity. I think there was something with that house. As my friend uh, described with her son, they started asking the neighbors, like, no one's ever lived in that house very long. Divorce, people losing their jobs, just a lot of bad mojo there. And then they move in and then they have problems yeah. that they did not bring with them. So, And that's common know, with a lot of stories like that. That's common. And that's the thing I kind of wanted to dispel because, you know, they're also of a religious family. They're not religious zealots by any means. Normal family practicing their faith, not bent on uh, anything that uh, would be considered zealotry. So... They just had a very strange experience in that place. And so, again, you might be thinking like, well, you know, the two people we just heard from in their stories, like, yeah, of course. But just want to let you know that it doesn't restrict itself, these kinds of incidents. And we're not saying we know what it is. It just doesn't restrict themselves to people of, of faith. Along that same line, if we were looking to see if a disease was actually occurring or not, we would not necessarily look to see if it affected 
a random sampling of the population. We would look to see if there were commonalities between the people that were suffering from it. Right? So, I mean, you look at some diseases where, you know, sickle cell anemia is specific to a certain part of the population, right? Yeah. The fact that, you know, ovarian cancer only occurs in females does not mean that ovarian cancer is a thing made up in the mind of all females. Right, right. Right? Yeah. Like, it just means that it's it, there's something causally linked between, in that case, it's an obvious causal link, but the fact that there might be this connection to religiousness, I mean, yeah, one possible explanation for that is definitely that, well, people that are prone to religious uh, belief are also prone to supernatural belief, let's say, or something like that. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's what I was That's kidding. one potential, but right. there's also the other potential, which is that, there's something else there. There is something real here. Just because that link exists does not presuppose that other leap in the assumption. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And that's one part that I think is always brought up where, you know, people will say, you know, well, why is it always this type of person that gets abducted or something? Well, it's not just the type of person that has an experience with a, a being or a ghost or something scary, right? Right. It happens to everyone. But even if we did find commonalities there, that would not necessarily require it to be false. Right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like it, it is that same old fallacy again and again of correlation does not suggest causation. Right. 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 So yeah, well, you just have to be careful with that. Yeah, because we as humans, we're predisposed to make patterns because that's how we make yeah. sense of things. And so it's like, you know, you always hear comics, stand-up comics. Why is it always some hick out on a farm out in the middle of nowhere? You know, get, he and his cows get picked up by this big beam. It's like, well, no, uh, it's pretty all over the place. Now, Rob, I think you, ha did you have a comment about that? That's the thing. It's like uh, when you read Abduction by John Mack, Harvard psychologist who was brought cases of abductions to look at, what he found is like there is no... No clear indicator for who is more susceptible than others for abduction experiences. And one thing that he did notice that in his experience, he could not find any person who had certain types of trauma that they were masking with an alien abduction story. The inverse is actually the truth where they would go in looking for answers to certain types of trauma or abuse and they uncover this abduction narrative, which is very strange. And it also works against the grain, so to speak, of what most people would actually think is happening in, in an abduction case, that there has to be some kind of cause and that maybe it's just a masking of trauma. Right. One thing I think um, that everyone should keep in mind, whether it's you're listening to Arcapalooza or other episodes or TV shows or movies or reading a book, is before you make a judgment before, you know, believer, skeptic, whatever, this happened, this didn't happen. It was this or it was this. Let the stories sit with you. Let them sink into you. Give them a moment to be a story before they're a black or a white or a yes or a no or a this or a that. Listen to these stories. Let them soak into you. Let them wash over you and, and then come to a decision because it's all too easy to make a snap judgment based on one factor and Forget all the rest. Very well put. Well, one of the last things I do want to say is we're going to be staying in touch with Lauren and hoping that this situation that appears to be ongoing is maybe getting under control or there may be ways to uh, find ways to make that aspect of her life a little more predictable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And um, because uh, we have concern, I would say. I have concern for uh, her situation. 
And I want to thank her for sharing her story, such a personal story, with all of our listeners. And the other thing I want to do is I want to thank you guys for coming on for Arkapalooza. This was a blast. And about five minutes ago, Marie's computer like caught on fire, and she's like <laughs> off the call. But she is texting, and she's just uh, saying that she had a, a great time. And uh, I, I want to say thank you also to uh, Chris Cogswell and Rob Christofferson for coming on with us. Thank you guys so much for being on the show. Anything you want to say? I just want to send a message to Rich Haddam. I've been on here more than you have, buddy, so take that. (laughs) (laughs) It's like Saturday Night Live appearances. Yeah. Uh, Cogs, you have any parting words? Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks for all the awesome support online. And if you like Arkapalooza, then harass Scott and Forrest. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and uh, we'll come on again. There you go. That's all I got to say. And uh, Tess, of course, thank you so much for managing the research corps, being our right-hand woman, just taking care of everything in general and helping to coordinate this. We, as I said on Twitter a few days ago, I don't know, time blends together, but uh, we'd be at sea <laughs> without you. So thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> You're all very welcome. And from the bottom of our hearts, thank you so much for all the work you've done uh, and the participation and the friendship you know, just the camaraderie we get with this. We all wish we could have you all out to dinner. We're sitting around at one big table having dinner and drinks and talking about just exactly what we've been talking about. Not quite there from a revenue standpoint yet. Oh, to fly uh, everybody in (laughs) to our secret lair. But the the second we are, that is definitely the first thing on the list. Um, Absolutely. Goodbye. Bye. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye, Rob. And uh, I'll do Marie. Bye, guys. (laughs) <laughs> Doppelmarie. Doppelmarie. That's going to wrap up our 100th episode celebration with one of the spookiest stories we've ever recorded. Special thanks to Katie, Quaid, and Lauren from The Ark for sharing their stories. We'll be back next week with a new show on the infamous Chicago ghost, Resurrection Mary. Please remember to support our sponsors. They keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John Bolin. Hi, I'm Kelsey Pinson. H-A-N-N-A-H. I am Jeremy Toomey. Once again, I've been Kelsey Pinson. Love the show, guys. Our show is edited by Sarah Wendell. And our theme, which is available as a ringtone, is by Judson Crane. Sound design is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to The Ark and its lead researcher, Tess Feifel. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can also find us at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends if you'd like to support the show in that way. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night. <laughs>